Hello and welcome to Unstoppable the Podcast. This is episode number six, and today we're getting all child's play with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, who I have to say, so far in this series, has been one of my absolute favorite. This is the one for all the parents, especially if you worry about how you're raising your kids. If you've ever yelled at your kids, smacked your kid, or if you threaten them on a daily basis to take away their toys if they don't do what they're told, this is going to be the episode for you, where I'm going to be talking to an expert about what it takes to raise your child the right way. She is actually a parenting expert and registered psychologist with over 15 years experience. She is the author of Discipline Without Damage, and she's an incredible individual, and she's one of the smartest cookies I've ever met in the area of parenting. What she actually has to say about raising your children could change everything about what you thought true parenting was. Listen up. Ladies and gentlemen, we are super excited to welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, actually, I want to make sure I get this right. It's Dr. Vanessa Lapointe. You got it. Oh, God damn. I'm glad I got that <laughs> right the first time. Welcome to the podcast to talk about superhuman parenting. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, I'm super excited to have you. Like, this is a very special topic to me. Uh, reason being, like, I was first a, what I would, I'd label myself my first experience as a father when it was when I was, gosh, I was in my early 30s and I was dating a girl who had a, a little 18-month-old girl. And I became her pretend dad from 18 mm. months until when she was almost five. Wow. And for years, I used to refer to Isabella as one of the greatest coaches that I've ever had because mm. she just taught me so much about life. Uh, and discipline, you know, that was in such contrast to how I was brought up. And yeah, just for me, uh, exploring the potential for children, especially when we consider where we are right now as a culture, as a society at a global level and also you know, at a country level, there is so much potential for where we can go from here, which lies in our kids. Yes. So to be able to speak to an expert mm. who can help us do that is incredible. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. So you've been supporting children and families for more than 15 years. How did this all begin? Where did your journey when it comes to working with kids start? You know, when I was a teenager, I always had summer jobs running day camp programs for kids. And so, so worked with kids from the time I was very young. Is that like a camp counselor kind of thing? Yeah. Or? Right. Yeah. Oh my God, I've seen the movies. That's I awesome. know, such a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought of those kids as my kids, you know? And even when I left home and went off to university, they would send me letters and we had quite mm. a connection. And so um, I knew that when I uh, launched into my profession, professional career that somehow, some way I would end up working with children. And what that evolved into is becoming a child psychologist. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so when you, did you start studying psychology before you knew you wanted to go in the direction down the childhood path? Yes, I did. I started studying um, biological psychology, so really how the brain affects how we feel and what we perceive and believe to be our reality. And then after really kind of figuring the brain out, I thought how interesting to apply this to the formative developmental period, that is childhood, where the brain is uh, literally exploding with connections. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so did was it an aha moment for you or was it a gradual realization that on this path of study that you're taking that you had to go down this path and work with kids? Uh, it was a gradual realization as I went through uh, my, my neuropsych studies right. that I really wanted to figure out how to bring this to bear on kids. Because it was interesting, I was talking to a, a psychologist yesterday who specializes in, in sex ther- sexual therapy, mm-hmm. and she was saying how she almost, or a similar story, how she got involved in psychology, she got into her studies, and naturally she started to you know, present um, papers and essays that were related to sexual and sexuality and, and different things. And so it just became a natural pro- 
course progression for her. Mm-hmm. Is that something that happened in the early study for you? You just natively and naturally started yeah. going well, towards that direction? I ended up working in an infant development lab oh, wow. when I was a third year undergraduate student. And so, so what's an infant development lab? Mm-hmm. I was in the hospital right. as babies were born into the world and okay. we were looking at how their brains perceive sound information. Wow. And so they had to be under 24 hours of age in order to participate in our study. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And so looking like from those very, very first moments of life on forward, um, how our experiences with the world around us shape how our brain uh, forms neural connections and how that in turn shapes um, how we live our lives. So has that basically given us insight to how important those first 24 hours are in terms of what they hear? Well, we actually know that a lot happens in terms of what they hear, but also what they feel and experience. And so one of the first questions that I will ask families who are coming in to work with me in my clinical practice is what was the birth experience like? Because we know through birth uh, experiences and whether or not you were able to be connected uh, with your parents immediately upon arriving in this physical world, that that actually can shape and form. Um, part of who you become later in life. So that's interesting. So how important is it for a parent to connect? Because we look at National Geographic, right? And basically, you know, it's what it says on the box. It's very natural. They give birth. And the first thing that the mother does is connects with its, you know, with its infant newborn. How important is it for us as humans to be able to have those moments of connection as soon as that baby comes into this world? You know, we are a social species by design and we seek human connection, uh, not only for its own sake, because we need it to survive. Mm. And so babies know this as they arrive in the world, they know that you're going to be their best bet. They know that their big person, the person that's welcomed them into the world, is the one that they need to find. And so they are literally, from the moment they arrive, they are looking for you. They're looking for your voice. They're looking for your smell. They're looking for your touch. They're even looking for your rhythm in terms of what they would have experienced in the womb and what they're now experiencing on the outside. And if you watch, you watch any new parent, and I'm sure that you have this experience, as soon as that baby opens their little eyes and they start to blearily look around the room because they can't see very well, what they're looking for are eyeballs. Really? Right? And when they find your eyes, look at your faces, I've said that to you, when they find your eyes, they'll lock them like this and they'll hold that stare and something inside of you shifts to be changed forever, right? Right. Like in that moment, you decide that you would step in front of a moving train for that child. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how Mother Nature supports us biologically to do that. Because obviously when a child is born, enormous amounts of oxytocin are released in Mm -hmm. a woman's body and also a man's body as well. Well, when that baby's looking at you as a dad, guess what's happening in your brain? Oh, it's it's like a chemical firestorm. Squirting oxytocin everywhere, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, which is fantastic because a lot of you know a lot of people don't realize you know, the more biochemically healthy a woman is, the, the higher rate of higher amount of oxytocin in her bloodstream, and the more natural it becomes to connect to a, to, a, to a child. So we know it's important, but I guess there are some situations where some mothers actually don't get that opportunity. You know, some fathers don't get. I, I feel very blessed. Like we we had planned a home birth, uh, but as soon as my wife's uh, waters broke, there was meconium in the water, and we knew we had to go to hospital. So. You know, it was it was an interesting progression to see how we you know we were really excited about having a home birth and then you know the, the wind was taking out of our sails a little bit you know as we went to hospital and it was, it was I don't think it was necessarily the longest labor it was 26 hours I don't know what that's like on the scale of labor um, longish longish <laughs> probably my wife would say it was fucking long <laughs> but for me uh, it probably wasn't as bad 
but you know, it was interesting just experiencing the emotions that come up for us when we went from, you know, our hopes were pinned on a, a natural home birth, right. you know, water sure. birth. And we then went to the hospital. You know, we both adapted very quickly. My wife was, you know, probably a little bit more behind in terms of, you know, because she was very attached to this, mm. you know, this, this natural home birth. But I felt very privileged in the fact that, you know, although we we had to have the, the birth induced with with syntocin and an epidural that we were there for that moment when he came out and exactly what you described it was an incredibly special moment my life changed in an instant but for the parents that feel like that they were robbed of that you know what does that mean that the the child is going to be forever scarred is there is there mm. something that we can do in order to ensure that yeah. you know that we 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 give them the best possible chance to have a healthy attachment you know, from that from that moment moving forward. Well, the real gift of contemporary psychology is that we know that the brain's plasticity or its mm. openness to external influence uh, is alive and well across the lifespan, and never more so than in the first. Uh, 25 or so years of life, but especially the first six to eight years of life. And so if you've had bumps along the way, if there's been ruptures or difficulties like a separation at birth because things didn't go exactly the way as planned, there's lots of kids that will need medical intervention as soon as they arrive in the world. Moms or dads that aren't able to be in room with baby because they need medical intervention, other things that are happening that will create those separations or those ruptures. Because the brain is so open to external influence, as long as we are then parenting with connection in mind, we can actually um, largely undo any potential negative repercussions from that. And that's beautiful, because I think some, you know, I know for my wife, there was a there was a period of time where she was, you know, had to let go of some stuff around how attached she was around to that natural birth. But I can imagine for for a woman that maybe has to have a C-section who was attached to a natural birth, like, because that was something we had to actually consider. Which is significant change of course. Yeah. Sure. So I think it's important for a lot of women and also men out there to realize that, you know, there's always, there's always more we can do. Yes. Yes. It doesn't, it's not a life sentence just because of that. The ship has never sailed. Yeah. You can be 89 years of age (laughs) and still restructuring those neurons in your brain. So uh, this is going to be a big question. It's a broad question, but I'm happy to see where it goes from, from your response. But in your opinion, how do we help kids to grow up in the best way possible? Mm -hmm. I think what we need to do first is recognize the key role of connection. And a lot of people will look at the relationship between parent and child or when I start talking about how important it is that your children actually feel seen and heard by you, that it's getting a bit sort of very fairy or a bit psychobabbly. It's going to be time for a group hug soon and they, you know, they want out. But when we look at the neuroscience, the science of child development, and we look at what actually allows brains to grow in the way that nature intended, uh, children need that connection. It's not that they want it, but rather that they need it. And if they don't have it, much like if you weren't feeding them or weren't watering them or weren't sheltering them, they would die because they're dependent on you to provide for that need. If they don't get their need for connection met, they will die. A human child yeah. cannot survive outside of some kind of uh, emotional attachment to another human being. And I've treated children in my practice for whom medically nothing is wrong. They've been diagnosed, of course, with everything in the book. Medically nothing's wrong. What is wrong is that they've been robbed of every attachment or connection that they've ever known. And so their bodies, their brains have taken a look around and thought, hmm, not tenable, I'm out. Right. Right? And the physical systems start start to shut down. They will die without intervention. Which I think is called failure to thrive. Is that right? It's a form of failure to thrive. A form of failure to thrive. Because I I remember when I first started doing my research into parenting, this is over a decade ago now, and I I researched, there was a book that was written where they described how there was one of the world wars 
where an occupying force went into a territory and they confiscated all the babies mm -hmm. and they put them into these baby farms and they had a nurse that would essentially go around every few hours and just try and put a bottle in their mouth because their goal was to breed soldiers. And, you know, what, what they discovered was these ba babies died en masse. Yes. You know, and that's where I believe failure to thrive, you know, has since been researched and studied around. But what was interesting was understanding the importance of that connection at a vital level. It's critical for survival. Mm -hmm. But I've also recognized it's not necessarily something, cause, and I, I do want to go back to connection and identify what that is, but I also think it's important for us to look at, is this connection something that we don't lose? Is it something that as adults we, you know, we fundamentally desire? Because when we're a child, if we don't get that connection, there's a huge possibility we could die. But then as we start to become more independent, you know, as small children, then you know, adolescents and then young adults, some people carry this unhealthy desire for, for connection to a level where it almost becomes like a drug. And if they don't get it, it can become psychologically damaging for them. Yeah. So how do we provide a level of connection that will produce a healthy child, but it won't be so much where it could perhaps produce unhealthy levels of desire for connection that could perhaps end in things like codependence? You're using this really beautiful language of how do we provide a level of connection, which actually guides us to the answer. And so as we form relationships with our growing children, the level of the connection deepens and deepens and deepens. And if everything plays out the way nature intended, by the sixth year of life, you will have arrived at the deepest root, the deepest level of connection, the deepest um, place of being known and understood by your uh, primary uh, care providers. So if that can happen, what will happen for the child emotionally is that they develop a real sense of self, that they can be with others without losing themselves in other. Right. And so then you can imagine what that translates into when you grow up and become an adult and you're again in relationship with other humans, be them romantic relationships, um, professional relationships, friendships. Uh, you're in relationship with them with a real sense of yourself and your needs as a child were uh, all filled up or all met. So you don't have to whole fill by seeking from others what you didn't receive for yourself, right. right? And so a lot of the work that you will um, see parents end up doing for themselves when they begin to grow up their children and it raises all of this emotion in them is that they're actually going back um, and in a way reparenting themselves so that the things that they maybe didn't get as fully as they needed to have yeah. uh, when they were we now are met. They, they do it for themselves and right. often in the act of parenting because they want to give the very best to their own Is that healthy? Person. To reparent yourself? Yeah. Absolutely. And not only is it healthy, um, I would suggest that if you want to grow your child up in the best possible way, where you must begin is with yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's explore connection. Like, it's such a powerful word that, you know, I'm sure if we had 30 people in this room right now and we all got them to write down the defini definition of what connection is mm -hmm. or how they would connect with another human being, we'd probably get maybe 20 or 25 different answers. Yes. So in the context of the early, child, the, the early infancy, and we talk about the importance of the critical nature of that connection, what is connection? So if we're going to describe it globally, I would say that connection is really being seen and heard right. by the person with whom you're interacting. When we apply that to very young children, the way they feel 
see and heard is going to be different from a 42-year-old or a 57-year-old or an 89-year-old, right? And so how an infant feels seen and heard is by being able to be in connection with their big people via the senses. And that's why we hold our babies. We, are, we know now not to let them cry things out, that we must keep them close to us and we shush in their ear when they're crying and we let them smell us and we let them taste us. And so they're really connecting to us in a very sort of physical way. Way. Um, when they progress into the second year of life, they like to connect with us a little bit more relationally. And so that we, we sometimes call this stage the same Z stage. Um, I have two boys at home and I remember this stage very well because our eldest son, who will be horrified if he knows one day that I've told this story, um, uh, walked in on me showering one day and realized that I didn't have a penis in the same way that he has a penis. <laughs> and he was devastated. Like, he was like, what wow. happened to it? Where did it go? Did right. it fall off? Like, how could you be so different from me when this is the way that I'm connecting to you? Like, I need right. to do the same right. with you. Yeah. And so, and then uh, a, a day or two later, he walked in on his dad having a shower. And I remember his little feet running down the stairs and flying into the kitchen and he's like mom daddy's got a penis and I was like yeah I know um, so same thing the second year of life right. And then as we progress into the third year of life, we really like to have a sense of belonging and significance. And so you'll see, you know, if you have a three-year-old and then you have an, another baby, that three-year-old is going to be the most territorial three-year-old you've ever seen in the history of time because they're, that's how they connect, through belonging and significance. Right. Um, and then as we move on, kids want to really be um, cherished. They want to feel like you get them. And that's the stage when they're going to bring you their art pictures like 37 times a day yeah. to uh, ooh and ah over because they want to know they me, matter. Look at yeah. me, look at me. I'm look here at me. and I'm cool yeah. and I want you to think that about right. me. And then by fifth year of life, they become uh, familiar with the feeling of love. And it's not till the fifth year where we've laid wow. all of this foundation that they actually will feel what we would identify as adults as love. Um, and it's and pure, isn't it? It's so pure yeah. and it's so light and it's so poetry that's as yet untarnished by our ego and all of the wounds that we'll experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Socialization. So it's interesting. Um, like I'm very grateful for the journey that my, my ex-wife and I had on, on, not just through the pregnancy and the birth. Mm-hmm. And we, we took the, the attachment parenting route, mm-hmm. which I found really fascinating because, you know, the, the story goes, you know, when we were primates, you know, we were on all fours. We had a 12-month gestation period. And then when we stood up on, on two legs, and it provided a lot more downward pressure and it ended up like, you know, rolling back three months. And so when we're born, we're actually based on our, and I hope I get this the right way, but based on our biology, we're almost three months premature. Right. And so the attachment parenting is very much based on, you know, a lot of skin mm. on skin, mm-hmm. you know, and essentially recreating that womb-like environment for that next three months. Kangaroo care. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How sure. important is that in the first three months, in your opinion, based on what you've seen? Uh, it, it's it's essential. What I tell um, all of my uh, new parents is that uh, every baby's cry is an emergency, that they, they need to be close to you. You're literally, as you hold them and have them skin on skin, and they, they taste you and smell you and feel you around them and have the rhythm of your body and the feel of your heartbeat and all of those things around, you are co-regulating them. And as that happens, that 
it's like it's soaking in through their skin and soaking into their neurons and literally sculpting the neurological pathways that will then become a part of how they understand their social world. Wow. So imagine wow. holding your baby and really being in deep connection for, you know, especially those first three months, but I, you know, even longer than yeah. that, to just really be there, to really actually encourage dependence rather than independence. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So we want to encourage dependence Absolutely. in that early stage. It is through the gift of allowing your children to be deeply dependent upon you that they will eventually emerge the other side fully independent as human beings. If you force the independence too early, you're, you, you rob them of the opportunity to be truly mature and become independent. They'll forever be hungry for it. And is that where perhaps trust issues can start? Because they, were ne they never fully had someone to depend upon? And That's so they right. That's right. Wow. And so you start to see the pulling back and the numbing out and the tuning out as a self-preservation technique. I am so grateful that we, we did that because um, my son now, he's three years, eight months and 30, three years, nine months in a day. And I only know this because I just wrote a, a Father's Day article, so I had to count say, it wow, all up. Like you're still tracking yeah, the not, days. <laughs> yeah, I, but only just because I just wrote an article about it. Um, but one of my um, favorite practices with my son is it's called uh, belly to belly. And I called it belly to belly transfer. And it started with me just pulling my, my shirt up. He'll pull his shirt up. We'll touch our bellies together and I'll give a little so bump great. and then I'll provide him a healing. And over the last uh, nine months, it's evolved into this game where in the mornings now, like he'll come into my, like he'll wake up, I'll go in and I'll go, what do you want to do? He'll go, I want to chase feet. And so we'll go into my bedroom. And sometimes it's crazy. He'll even do this in the middle of the day or even in the evenings. He'll go, okay, daddy, let's do chasing feet. He'll pull me into the bedroom. He'll close all the doors, all the windows, get me to turn out all the lights. And then he'll say, daddy, take your clothes off. And I know how weird this sounds, right? You <laughs> carry on. <laughs> And he'll get me to take his clothes off down to his, his nappy or his undies and I'll take my clothes off down to my, you know, my boxer shorts. We'll jump into bed and we'll just literally roll all over each other. He, he will get on top of me. You know when you see a dog in a park and it finds yeah. like a dead bird or a piece of shit and it just rolls in uh -huh. it? He will just roll all over me and, you know, into me. And we just, it's just mm. this magic magnetic mm -hmm. attraction that just almost combusts into this, you know, this world of, of you know, physiological fireworks. Yes. At what age does that become inappropriate? Oh, you'll know. Right. And the thing is that you don't you don't need an expert or anybody to script it for you because there'll be a natural sort of yeah. um, Separation. shifting of the game that will become something different as they uh, grow older. Lots of times parents will ask me, well, how do I know when I shouldn't change in front of my kid or use the bathroom in front of my kid? You or just know. You'll know yeah. because it'll just, you'll, you'll get a spidey sense about it. It'll start to feel kind of like different and yeah. they'll naturally sort of pull away and you'll naturally pull away. And that's the thing. We have so much intuition built into yeah. our wiring about how to do this. So you'll know. The beautiful thing about that game, you, you described it as physiological fireworks. Mm. And also there's this wonderful dance happening when you're in that kind of roughhouse play sort of where they're figuring out the give and take and the back and forth of oh, yeah. relationship. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. And I know um, in terms of um, like proprioceptive understanding of self and other and where our bodies are in space, roughhouse play is actually a really important part of even that um, part of our neurological system. So like check mark, check mark and check mark. Oh wow, so I'm I'm passing the parenting test so far. You're winning. All oh, right, I am winning. <laughs> this is so cool. Um this is just Okay, so you mentioned co-regulating. Mm -hmm. Uh co-regulating because the question I was going to actually ask you is, you know, how important is it for us as big humans to teach them how to regulate as little humans? 
Because one of the things I've learned in my own journey through my own therapy and my own development and growth is the importance of learning how to regulate emotions. And I almost feel like I only learned how to do that in the last 20 years of my life. I don't feel like I actually grew up learning how to regulate you know, some of the intense emotions that come up, which in many cases triggered levels of anxiety that I didn't know how to deal with either. Sure. So with kids and with you know, this goal of raising healthy children, you know, you mentioned that the skin on skin is a great way to you know, initiate the process of just intuitively you know, teaching them how to co-regulate because they're tuning into the environment of you know, the parent's body. You know, but at, at some point as those kids become more mature and you, know, you reach that different stage where there's perhaps less skin on skin, what role do we play and how do we play that role of you know, demonstrating or modeling you know, the regulation that's required in order to become a healthy human being? Mm-hmm. So it is essential for parents to do that for children for the first several years of life. And the reason is, you know, it's interesting. We hear um, very early on, babies need to learn to self-soothe to sleep right? Which I always just think, do we all understand that that's not even a thing? (laughs) Like babies don't self-soothe. They can't. They don't have the neurological wiring to do it. They're they're literally seeking it from the world outside. The only reason that babies will fall asleep when you're sleep training them using an extinction method, which is basically the cried out method, is that they literally become so traumatized by the experience of being so alone when they're so frightened that they dissociate and their brains turn off. And we're like, oh, terrific, they went to sleep, it's working. Oh, my God. Yes. And so that's because they're not being co-regulated. Right. And so children actually can't be taught how to regulate their bodies. They must experience co-regulation and via the world of neuroplasticity, then come into the capacity to regulate self, to manage impulses and all of those kinds of things. And so as a young child fires up and gets dysregulated because they're frustrated or sad or mad or something's happened. And so all of the, the, so the downstairs brain, which is where all the wiring is housed, that's going to kind of, you got it. And then we've got our thinking brain on top, right? Uh, this is the cortex. Right. And so we often talk about when the downstairs brain gets all rumbly, fired up, we, we flip our lid. So the thinking brain now lo- no longer exists. Yeah. And yet what do we do to our little kids? Use your words. Wow. <laughs> Tell me what you want, right? They're, they're, that part is not even online right now. There's nothing there. They're all downstairs because they don't have the capacity to self-regulate until they've amassed enough experiences that we've literally scripted for those neurons how to wire themselves up so they become good at self-regulation. So as your, your little one gets fired up, when you swoop in alongside as a big person and co-regulate by uh, offering uh, empathic understanding and connection and all of those kinds of things, you'll settle them back down. We now, through the act of connecting emotionally with children, it is the, uh, it's the opposite of being dysregulated. It is what brings children back down to a space of being regulated. Wow. And then practice that. I don't know, you got a three-year-old. Yeah. So how many times a day does that go down? Well, and it's interesting how what we're taught in mainstream society, like when a child cries, you know, we're even told, like you said, let them self-soothe. And what you're suggesting is the healthiest thing we can do for a child when they're crying is actually hold them. Absolutely. But I guess at what point does us holding them or how important is our mental state when we hold them 
to ensure that we are teaching a healthy co-regulating um, mm -hmm. practice. And so that's why it's so important that parents look into themselves and make sure they've done their own work right. in the act of becoming the best parent that they can be for their child to grow up in the best possible way. Because if you're perpetually in a dysregulated state, if you're anxious, if your child's blow-ups are triggering in you, you yeah. know, this state of alarm, and now you're like, no, we're good, like everything's fine, I'm going to co-regulate you, kids, because they haven't been socialized like we have as adults, they'll just like sniff you from yeah. a mile away and they'll be like, yeah, like that's happening. <laughs> and, it, and nobody's regulated. Yeah. Now we're all just, you know, in an iterative way, um, creating all sorts of storms of dysregulation. Can that be even more destructive than, than no co-regulation at all? Like let's say you've got a parent that's there, their child is having a meltdown, their lid is flipped. They're going, well, I was told that I must hug my child and I'm fucking pissed off. I'm losing my own shit right now. I'll hug them. Calm down, calm down, calm down. Like, at what point does that become destructive, potentially? Yeah. So the advice that I would give parents around that piece is that if you feel like you're going to harm your child physically, We're talking physically? Okay. Mm -hmm, uh, you need to walk away. Yeah. If you're in it and you, f you can feel yourself going, so you're going to start shouting or being sort of the angry, um, yelly parent, uh, try to find a way to exit gracefully stage left. Where you're like, you know what, sweetie? I just remembered I have to call grandma. I'm coming right back. Right. And then go and like take some deep breaths, get yourself pulled together, and come back online so that you can reconnect in a way that's going to be um, maybe a little bit more helpful. Because you will, you'll have to undo it. Yeah. If you lose it on your child, you are going to have to circle back yeah. around, yeah. undo that. We've robbed them now of an opportunity uh, for co-regulation. Um, and then we have to kind of pick up the pieces. Not that you wreck them. Yeah. Like I'm a child psychologist. And if you think it's <laughs> fabulous in my house every day, think again. But that you, you, you'll have to come back around to it. So the yeah. less that we end up in those circumstances, the better. One of the things I find really interesting as an observation is the what seems like the overwhelming disability for parents to take um, responsibility when they make a mistake in front of their child and actually own it in front of their child and even apologize. Mm -hmm. um, is that something you see on a regular basis? And if it is, like, how, how do we approach personal responsibility with our kids in a way that you know, doesn't feel like... Because I know for some parents, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here that they might feel like they lose their power, but I know for me personally, like when I do something that's... If I accidentally raise, and my, my son, no, he's really good. Like if I raise my voice, he'll put his hand in his ear and go, daddy, that's too loud. Yeah. And I'll just like, I'll, I'll crouch down at his level. I'll look at him and I'll say, sorry, buddy. I, I raised my voice. I know I shouldn't have. I didn't mean to do that. And the response I get from him, it's so sweet. Like he'll say, it's okay, dad. You know, I understand or, or something incredible like that. But what I'm curious to know is how important is it for us as parents to set that example of personal responsibility when we perhaps act out in a way yeah. that we become conscious of in a you know in that moment isn't appropriate it's not a great demonstration of healthy behaviors how do we approach that as you know as a parent i think part of the challenge is that we confuse role with relationship and so in parenting our children we get really tied to this idea of what is our role our role is to be in charge our role is to be the one in the lead our role is to show our child our role is to provide guidance like we get sort of really um locked down in what that is when uh really like you could you could biologically be the dad or the mom uh, and that could biologically be your role but you haven't earned your space in the relationship Mm. Right. And so then when we think about relationship uh, where it's not this like um, 
this kind of oogie sort of power that you're bringing to bear on the situation, which then would have you defending and not wanting to admit that you were less than or that you fell down or that you made a mistake, right? If we get out of that kind of power instead, walk into a space of nurturing power, the sort of power that has our child knowing we are their best bet. And even if they don't always agree with us, even if they don't always love the boundary that we've set or the rule that we've held in place, that they will know we've got their back and we're picking up what they're putting down and we understand them as a result of being their big person. And so when you're in that kind of a space around what is the power dynamic in the parent-child relationship, and you know that relationship is the epicenter of how nature is going to allow this child to grow as intended, you will seek to atone. You will seek to own your wrong, and you will do it in a way that has you beautifully in the lead in terms of scripting for them how that looks, that we all make mistakes, that it happens. I was the super yelly, shouty mom this morning. I am so sorry. <laughs> and that's done now, sweetie. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to, and then the next point of connection. Wow, that's beautiful. Hmm. So how different are our brains fundamentally, you know, when we talk about the adult brain, you know, at full maturity, which is in most yes. cases what the parent's brain looks like. And then you have the, you know, you've got the infant brain, you've got the toddler brain. When we look at the infant slash, say, toddler brain, what are the, the key differences that as parents we need to be aware of that will help us understand the different types of communication that we need to be using when we're communicating either with an infant or with a toddler? I love this this question. So the brain um, basically is going to wire up from the bottom up, right? And we just talked about downstairs brain and upstairs brain. And this is where it's sort of our, our traditional understanding of IQ or intelligence, all of that's upstairs brain stuff, downstairs brain stuff is emotional brain. And if the brain is growing from the bottom up, so in the in the first years of life, it's really this part of the brain that's most actively in development, most importantly in development, we want to be able to connect with that. We want to know why it's so important that we are in right relationship and in attachment, in connection with our young children, that we are fostering dependence, that we are welcoming uh, them into the fold, that we're inviting them them to lean on us so that they don't have to be in this dysregulated state of survival, that we can really get um, those neurons all wired up in the best possible way. And then what will happen is the cortical layers will really start to um, develop. And uh, and the cortex develops in a wave-like pattern in terms of thickening, which we'll use as a proxy for maturation from the base of the brain uh, at the back here, pushing forward to the front. And it isn't until we see a really juicy frontal and prefrontal cortical development that we will see kids fully coming online in terms of... What age of, do we see that? Yeah. So... On average, maximal thickness of the cortical layers up front will be around age 10. Right. But we have some variation. We know, for example, in the population of children that are uh, diagnosed as attention deficit, uh, if they genuinely have attentional regulation challenges, they are on average three to five years delayed in that frontal thickening. Um, And so there can be some variation, but but they do eventually catch up, which is actually really key and interesting. Um, And so as we think through that, we know that you have, um, for example, no capacity to blend emotion until you've got frontal lobe functioning fully on board. And you won't see the first glimmers of that until your child's roughly about age seven. Wow. And so we ask little children ages four and five to share. 
and for them it's just a foreign concept. Like I really, really, really want to play with this toy. That's feeling one. Yeah. Feeling two is, oh shoot, if I knock my friend over and steal the toy away from them, they'll be really sad. Right. If you're gonna, if you want to ask a child to share, you want to see them be independent in that, they have to have those two thoughts existing at the same time. And until your frontal lobe is fully online, you can't do it. So then what happens? This. And what thought reigns supreme? Well, the thought that's most serving of self, right? Right. And so uh, uh, that thought is going to be, I'm going to take the toy. <laughs> right. Unless there's an adult standing right there scripting it. Yeah. And it doesn't make them a bad child. Yeah. It just means that their brain is developmentally by design, right. rightfully so, immature. Yeah. Because they're four or they're five. Okay, interesting. They're not nine. Okay, that's fascinating. You didn't mention the mammalian brain. I'm curious because obviously you said it, 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 you know, it grows from the ground up. We've got the reptilian brain, which is responsible for all our basic emotions and feeling. Uh, we've got the neocortex, which is like this super engine of, you know, problem solving, critical thinking, being able to analyze situations and blend emotions. But what about the development of the mammalian brain, which, you know, is obviously so important in that social order and that social regulation for a child. Where does that come in? So that's going to be part of the ground up development. Right. And uh, and I, the, I mean, I'm making it sound like they go in layers and it's really clean and succinct. It's, <laughs> it's not, messy as hell, it's right? It's messy and it's <laughs> not like that at all. And so as you're developing the capacity for regulation, as you're, de- you're understanding as a social species, um, uh, that we have this dance, that there is reciprocity in that, that this is the way that that all plays out. That's where you're learning and uh, sculpting and scripting all of that out neurologically. So right. it's sort of happening simultaneously. It's happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. My son naturally loves to share things like food, water, drinks, uh, toys. It's just a real, and it's fascinating to everyone who sees it. Like mm. he just shares. So is that an indication of, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to make my child into some kind of super child here, but he is. But of is that, course he is. Of course he is. <laughs> what does that indicate when you see children like that yeah. that have those kind of, you know, behavioral anomalies? It could be a temperament thing right. where um, a few things, he could be a very easygoing child who just sort of naturally comes into that. The sharing of food and the connecting around those things to me speaks more of an attachment dance. Like we, that's a real sort of caring routine. And if yeah, he's right. been really cared for beautifully that way yeah. uh, by yourself and his mother, then you'll see him really naturally start to offer it back to you. So right. it's sort of like this mirror thing that yeah. begins to happen where you see coming out of your child exactly what you reflected onto him, right? Um, it's so true because even this morning I, I said to my son, um, he just got his fourth dan his, uh, for his white belt in jiu-jitsu. Oh, wow. And I just said to him, you got jiu-jitsu this afternoon. I want you to know I'm really proud of you. And he goes, oh, thanks, Dad. That's so sweet. And I was just <laughs> like, oh, where does this kid come up with this shit? Honestly, it's amazing. And but who do you know that speaks to him that I, way? That's what I say to him all the time. And I it's so that. amazing when you hear it come back to you as a mirror, as a reflection. Sure. And I think sometimes as parents, we forget, you know, how much our children reflect us. Yes. And for me, this is one of the things that I've seen in other parents where, you know, oftentimes one of the biggest challenges that we have in other people is not the other people, but it's the parts of ourselves that we see in them that we haven't resolved in ourselves that we don't really like. And I do you think that for some parents that some of the conflict that we have with our children is because they're perhaps exposing you know us to things that we've already reflected and exposed to them and, and we're like oh no 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 that's that's not who I want you to be mm-hmm. so that just gave me goosebumps right wow <laughs> I don't just no think hands. that yeah <laughs> I know that right I know that uh, I mean basically 
when it comes right down to doing our own work, um, there is no other. They're just a screen. Mm. And we just project all of our stuff onto them, right? And so if you have wounds that have not been healed, if you have um, hurts, if you have stuff that you're really trying to figure out, um, it's almost like your child's soul signed a contract to come onto this earth and be your kid and to trigger all of that in you <laughs> so you would get a chance yeah. to sort yourself out. I love that. What a gift. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. I feel so blessed. Like I'm, uh, I'm 42 now, I think. Uh, I didn't have my son obviously until um, my late 30s and I actually feel grateful for that opportunity mm. because I actually got so much time to work on my stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess for people that are listening to this, like many people will maybe not have kids or will have kids. So for the people not having kids, this is obviously a great recommendation for therapy. You know, for everyone, and I, I'm an advocate of therapy. I think everyone yeah. should have therapy in their life. But for perhaps those parents who are in, they're, they're in the parental mode right now, and they're seeing this dance come out, and they're starting to go, "Holy shit!" You know, I don't want to fuck my kid up. Mm -hmm. Like, what would you, what advice would you give to them? You know, if they're starting to become aware of what's being reflected back to them is actually what they're reflecting to their child. Mm -hmm. I would say, do your work. Mm. That this isn't about your child. This is about you. Uh, and that it's time to go inside and figure out what it is that you're vomiting up all over them uh, that's coming back. And in doing that, to know your innocence in that. Like, you, you, you didn't ask for that. I have yet to meet, I mean, I have worked with parents in the social, uh, like the child protection system, who, um, through the eyes of society, have done horrible things to their children. And I have yet to meet a parent who desired that who set out on their life path to do that to their kids, right? And so to know your innocence in that, that you're just a human being. You, you, you're, you are um, somebody who's trying to find their way in the face of obviously some challenges. And those challenges now are presenting very um, concretely in your role as a parent to your child. And so uh, lucky you, you get a chance. Because I think too many parents, and again, this is opinion, so I'm probably maybe judging here. From what I've seen, they, they try to treat the child when the problem isn't the child. It's like Caesar Milan. Have you heard of Caesar Milan, the, the dog trainer? I love his work. And what I love about his philosophy is his philosophy is, you know, I rehabilitate dogs and I train humans. He said, because the problem's not the dog. The problem is what the dog is reflecting from the human. That's right. And I see that in children. Like, I absolutely see that in children. Um, the question I have is, when it comes to developing our child, some parents obviously take a disassociated approach and they go, well, I'm going to work on the child. I'm not going to work on myself. And I know this is a loaded question for a very deliberate reason. How important is us working on ourselves and on what priority would that be when it comes to developing a healthy child? You know, should we be trying to work on the child and their behaviours first or should we be putting ourselves first and working on our stuff, our shit, you know, our baggage, in order to give us the best opportunity to work on them. What is to the highest good of self is to the highest good of all. Mm. And so when we can work on self, that's the first priority. But it's messy mm. because you're, you're not going to be like, oh, pause your development, sweet child well, of for mine. For some parents, it's also going to be confronting because they don't want to see the problem as themselves. Absolutely. Like a dog, the problem's not me, the problem's that's the child. That's incredibly vulnerable yeah. to have to sit with the reality that you might be the one. Yeah. Like this might be all you. <laughs> Right. And so um, you, you have to be pretty adult and pretty uh, mature to be able to go there. And that's not going to be the way it plays out for everybody. 
right? And so, so then we meet them exactly where they're at. And, and I do this in my work every day. I, I work with parents much more than I work with children. Yeah. Um, and, and I know, you know, different parents are at different places in their journey and can handle different layers of that accordingly. Um, and so I would say starting with self is always the ideal, but it's not going to be the reality for everyone. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is that in the act of growing up your child, like the one that you, you gave life to and brought into the world, there's this really wonderful loop that begins to happen for this child, the one inside yeah. of you that still hasn't grown up. And so even without directly taking on your own work, you can begin to um, uh, see that sort of play out in how you might uh, feel compassion for yourself, how you might understand self a little bit more deeply, a little bit more uh, lovingly than you would have before, because you'll be taken back to those places as you watch mm. your child grow. And so, you know, the, the work can play out and, and manifest at different levels and different layers, depending on where people are at and what they can handle. Wow, that's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, you know, it's interesting over the last, I grew up in a very fringe household. My parents split up when I was six months old. My mother, my father was like one of the top economists in the world. My mother was a clairvoyant and a psychic. And it was like this incredible, wow. this incredible mesh. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I would feel very grateful for that I was exposed to a very early age was mindfulness and meditation, uh, which has become a, you know, an incredibly central part of my life and a theme in my life. But it's also become, over the years, something that's become quite popular, you know, that's actually joining the ranks of pop psychology as, a, as, a, as in some cases, a tool and a treatment and a methodology uh, modality for treating, you know, all kinds of, you know, mental health issues and even just general performance issues. So from your experience, I'm curious to know, have you experimented? Like, has this been something that's been prescribed? Have you seen... You know, people start to adopt mindfulness and perhaps meditation and you know, con practices around self-awareness and consciousness in a way that has been really helpful in the parenting space. Mm -hmm. So for the first time last year, we actually ran a mindful parenting group um, out of our, our clinical space uh, where we had parents from our community coming together every week to talk about mindfulness in parenting um, and also with uh, our kids. I mean, the, the literature coming out around mindfulness and neurodevelopment mm. and how that all sort of plays out and, it, and the world of, of consciousness and conscious parenting and, you know, all of the different angles of that. Um, we know that that changes your experience. And when you, when you change your experience, you change your brain, you change the neurological pathways um, underneath all of that, which then carries on to have you perceive things differently, thus changing your experience. And it's this whole iterative thing. And so, uh, you know, all of the programs that are geared towards uh, mindfulness for children, mindfulness for us as adults, but then in particular, mindfulness for us as parents, um, absolutely seeing uh, big results. Wow. Uh, with respect to that in, in my work and certainly in the research world. Well, it's interesting because um, I used to meditate with my son when I had him on, mm, on Skin on Skin. Mm. And uh, it was one, one of the things that was really interesting is my wife, when he was an infant, found it very difficult to settle him. Um, but I would take him, put him on skin, I'd meditate, and you know, I'd have him settle in a moment. And it's become... Um, almost like a, a bit of a theme in my relationship with my son. There was a little bit of a gap there because it was probably an 18-month period where I, I lost my, my, my way with regular discipline meditation, but it's come back in a big way in the last few months especially. 
to the point now where you know I'll meditate on his bed, like because in the evenings he'll ask me to lie with him, and now what I do is I actually meditate with him, and then he'll call it, "Can you concentrate on my bed? You know, can oh. you meditate <laughs> on my bed?" Um, <laughs> which he loves, but it's been interesting now to watch his interpretation and his modelling because mm. it was on. Fa- I think it was actually Father's Day. Was it when I posted that photo? Father's Day, I was in bed, and he came into my bed, and we're doing the chasing feet, skin on skin, belly to belly. And I said, buddy, daddy um, didn't get to do his complete meditation this morning before you woke up. Do you mind if I finish my meditation now? And he's like, okay. And I said, that just means you're going to have to be quiet for a few minutes. And I was like, okay. So I started my meditation and then he was rolling around the bed and I could hear him playing around. And all of a sudden it went really quiet. And I opened my eyes and he's sitting there with his palms and his hands Ugh. like this, trying to, t- trying uh. to actually... Uh, like there's the photo, like there's the actual photo oh, of him <laughs> meditating. And... Um, it's interesting now just to see how he is naturally, naturally orientating towards becoming quite self-aware of yeah. not just his environment, but also himself. Mm-hmm. So his self-awareness, his consciousness, is that something that we can propagate at like even at age three? Mm-hmm. So there's, I feel like there's two layers. There's one is the physical modeling of that, but uh, the second and more profound layer is the uh, your child awakening to the experience of energetically being in your field as that's happening. And so when you described him as an infant on your chest while you were meditating and that you uh, found that that really settled him, think about energetically the field that you had created around him and the resonance within his little soul as he sort of landed in that field. And so now here he is at three and a half, he's, he's, he's soaked up neurologically, soulfully, um, emotionally, already these experiences, not just because you modeled it, but because you allowed him to be bathed in it. Yeah, right. And so here he is at three and a half. Man, it's nuts, absolutely yeah. nuts. Is this, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm, this is all about Noah, but it is. But is this something that you're seeing is becoming quite common? Are we, are we giving birth to a, a, a higher level of, because you've heard of blue children, or is it blue children? And the, the blue child, oh, is it blue children or purple kids? Um, I read about this movement, I think it was called Blue Children, where you know, there's, there's certain philosophies that believe that the children that we're giving birth to now uh, have higher levels of consciousness than, than perhaps the predecessors and, and ourselves, generations before them. Is that something that you're witnessing or is this perhaps some people getting a little bit carried away in certain you know, smaller cultures? So I don't know, I don't know about these the blue, blue children. children. Um, I think they're called Smurfs. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you think back, like generationally, rewind and think about the the uh, the world that children of that time were marinating in, and the crises that were around us, and and how um, there really was not time for navel gazing, <laughs> you know, first world problems. Yeah. That we there wasn't. Um, space for that because we were surviving. We were trying to get through world wars and depressions and other kinds of things that were really significant. And in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, had us not really self-actualizing very well, right? Mm. And so fast forward to now, particularly, um, you know, for your children and my children and, and this kind of a world that we're living in, that we are, we're 
marinating them in a different reality. And that reality uh, almost demands that you have emerged from those more kind of primitive ways of existing. And so if you rewind culturally in terms of how we would understand, you know, tears um, in our young children, and there was this sense like you got to suck it up, buttercup. You know, like if you don't learn how to do this now, what are you going to do when it comes to being out in the big, bad, real world? Right. So there was this hardness around that. And so now we understand like our realities are very different. Mm. And if we can raise um, children uh, in in sort of consciousness um, for the world that we live in right now, that's the fit. Like mm. that's what makes sense. That's what resonates. And so. Um, uh, what you're speaking of uh, lands for me because I do think that we are, you know, the pendulum is swinging away from these really sort of entrenched behaviorist ways of looking at um, children and, and swinging over to this space of understanding mm. um, that, you know, what uh, it's Hollis that I think talks about uh, sort of what we see, like the crusty outside is but a thin wafer that rests on top of this ocean of other things. And it's in becoming conscious that we become aware of the ocean, of what all is in that, that we uh, need to connect with as we yeah. grow ourselves and our children up. Because, you know, we hear a lot of, you know, especially in philosophy, that children are born into a natural state of consciousness and then they basically are grown out of it. Yeah. Like we pound it out yes. of them. Um, but to me also, I think consciousness and intuition are something, two things that are very intrinsically linked. You know, obviously the more conscious we become, the more tuned in we are to our environment and the information that's present, you know, that can be given to us. Sure. I'm curious to know from you, when it comes to building you know, a healthy, conscious child, how do we support children when it, become, when it comes to their intuitive capabilities that in many cases can probably, you know, exceed their parents' capabilities in a way that would encourage them to naturally develop it as a useful, like a really useful tool that they can use in life rather than push it down as something that they perhaps only get reintroduced to, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years later through some for form of a spiritual concept or, or intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when they realized how messed yeah. up they are. How do we support children to become intuitive? You know, I think... Um, Not become, hang on. How do we support children to naturally develop to, what's already there? To... Uh, to emerge into their full selves yes. with that intuition yes. on board. I think a couple of things. I think that if you are in that space yourself, then, then your child um, is going to be energetically given the opportunity to sort of uh, be their fullest self and not have to shut down pieces of themselves because it's not socially acceptable or it's not something um, uh, that's okay with the world around them. So for you as a parent to find yourself in that space so that your child will marinate in that. But the second thing is that one of our big jobs as parents is to really remove impediments, to provide the shield for the world that can be very overwhelming, very intrusive, very intense. Um, and in protecting our children from too much wounding from the world around, too early on, we, we allow their full self to exist. And so part of our job as a parent is to be the shield, to be the, the um, protective buffer that steps in. And this takes us back to that idea of, of dependence and really have our children resting in, in sort of this safe haven, this, um, this bigger womb, if you will, in the world that we've welcomed them into while their brains and their sense of self are are 
so uh, developing and growing. If we can provide that protection, what we give them is the capacity to carry it on independently as they emerge into fully mature adults. So I would say those two things, be aware of your own level of consciousness yeah. and also aware of your duty, your obligation, your, um, your uh, most incredible responsibility to shield and protect your child oh, from the world right. around. Like I literally feel like that was my, my pur I feel like I've found two purposes in life. My first purpose was to help people. And my second purpose was to actually have a son and you know have a child or be a parent, like whether it's one child or 50. You know, I just, what you said, it just lands, to use your language so beautifully for me. So you're most well known for, you know, obviously for many things, I checked you out, you're obviously very good at what you do, you've got a great reputation. But the thing that I found incredibly attractive, apart from your absolute incredible sharp mind, was your concept around discipline without damage. So what is, I know you wrote the book, you, or you actually did write the book, Discipline Without Damage. So as a concept, before we dive into it, what is the concept of discipline without damage? So the idea with discipline is that as, as parents, big people, uh, and when I say big people, I'm referring to all the grown-ups that yeah. are growing up children. So Adult children. Whether, <laughs> whether you're a teacher or a grandparent, an auntie, an uncle, a neighbor, a, a care provider, whatever your role is, when you are actively investing in the growing up of children, you're part of the crowd that I call big people. So we look at kids particularly in the world of discipline and behavior. And we're like, ugh, that, no. That hitting, that back talking, that, all of that is a no-go. And so we wanna squash it. We wanna, we wanna make it so that it doesn't exist because it's very inconvenient and it's loud and it's embarrassing and it's all of those kinds of things, right? What we happened into, unfortunately, over time was that um, we, we knew without knowing the connection that we have with our children is essential to them. And so we discovered very quickly that if we put the connection on the line, we can control the behavior. And so I don't like, I don't like your, your sassy back talk. I don't like how you just hit your brother. I don't like how um, you're not listening to me when I tell you to put your toys away. Go to timeout. And so what have we done? We've separated them from us. We've literally banished them. We've said, mm, you know, you're all that in a bag of chips, except for when you're not listening, not behaving, not doing all that. And so uh, I'll love you unconditionally, on the condition that. On the condition that <laughs> you, you do and are, yeah. as I say, as pleases me. And if you don't, then you're over there. Go away. Go and sit in some timeout. Or on the thinking bench or all the other flowery names we give it to make ourselves feel better. We send them away. And so right away we'll notice they're like, oh, and they don't like that. And so they'll cry and they'll, they'll proximity seek. They'll call to us. They'll want us to come back and end the timeout because they need the connection, not just because it feels good. Remember, they need it Survival. to survive, yeah. right? And so they're pretty much willing to do anything to restore the connection. Although a lot of parents will tell you if they're using timeout as the example, uh, over time, the timeouts lose their effectiveness because mm -hmm. your kid's like, yeah. whatevs, 
like I'm on to therapy. You. It's like <laughs> right, absolutely. So they numb. Yeah. They start to numb to it. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've we've recognized, unfortunately, that this connection is really essential to their development, uh, and it is a need, like a basic need. One of the United Nations Declaration right. of the Rights of the Child. One of the very first principles is that every child everywhere has the right to love, and mm -hmm. not because it feels good, but because we need it to survive. And then we decide we're going to play with it. I want you to behave, so I'm going to put that on the line. Mm. For reals, like the, something that's so essential to, to not just healthy development, like survival. And you're going to play with it? You're going to say, oh, 32 times a day when you have a toddler or, or a preschool age child um, and they're doing stuff that you don't want them to be doing, you're just going to put their most essential need on the line? At what cost? Wow. Like that is a sacrificial play if ever there was a sacrificial play, right? And, uh, and we find that like when you consequence children, it's another form of disconnect. Right? Because you're literally saying, oh, you really love pasta? You really wanted spaghetti for dinner? Well, guess what? You behave or that's out too. Oh, you really love bouncing on the trampoline? Do as I tell you or you don't get to anymore. Like separate, disconnect, separate, right? So it's almost like for many parents, discipline has been a, a process of bargaining. Absolutely. Yeah. And manipulating. In, well, yeah, that's a very... That's a potent word, yeah. And for all the parents out there right now that are like, but that's the only way I know how to do this, right? Yeah. And might be feeling incredible guilt around that. Yeah. The thing is, we were all raised by behaviorists, almost by definition, with few exceptions. We were raised by people that looked around and thought, that's not acceptable, squash, move on, right? So now we're all parents. And we're figuring it out. Yeah, right. And so, of course, that's how we've parented our children as, you know, mass generations of, of people in yeah. the last 20, 30 years. Of course, that's how we've done it. And so not to really spend a lot of time beating ourselves up, but to know that that's, that's not the way that yeah. it needs to be happening according to nature and the science of child development. And so really what Discipline Without Damage is all about is understanding that children are meant to misbehave. And in fact, we don't even need to call it misbehavior. They're meant to grow. And growth is messy and interesting and inconvenient and all of those kinds of things, which is exactly the way that it's supposed to be. Nobody ever yeah. said it was going to be really quiet and peaceful. So not what I said in the brochure, I'm sure. I know, right? It's interesting when you talk about like mainstream discipline, you, you refer to the bargaining and the manipulation, but you don't refer to like the physical discipline that you know has been you know quite dominant in our in many cultures for a long time. And I think it was about ten years ago I shared a um, a photo on Facebook that said you know I was brought up I, I was spanked as a child and as a result I developed a condition called respect for your elders. Mm -hmm. And I shared that like ten years ago, and I remember I copped a little bit of flack from a couple of people. And I was like, no, I stand by the fact, you know, I was, I was beaten as a child and I turned out all right, which is now questionable when I look at all the therapy that I've had. Mm -hmm. But then Noah comes into this world. And, you know, when he was, I think he was about maybe two, he was sitting on the couch and he was eating a carrot. And I looked at him, I was sitting beside him and I looked at him and I just started to remember all the things that had been used to discipline me, like you know, being hit with a thong, you know, having wooden spoons broken over you and you know, really copying some serious beatings. And then all of a sudden I started to visualize myself doing this to, to Noah. 
Mm. I lost it. Yeah. I just broke down. Like I was sobbing. Like Noah's like, Daddy, are you okay? Is there, am I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just putting myself back together. And he's like, are you okay? Like he was, you know, he was Noah. But for me, it was actually quite traumatic to now go, holy shit. Like that's not okay. Like yeah. that's just not okay. So how do we as, you know, adult children or adult big people, how do we reconcile the whole, well, this, you know, this is how I was brought up and I turned out all right. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Mm-hmm. I think when we know better, we need to do better. Yeah. And I'm also 42. We were, we were brought up in a different time. And what our parents knew and thus what they did is very different than what we know and thus what we need to do with our children. And um, one of the things about growing up is really being able to come into this space of being adaptive, of accepting the things that are not meant to be, that cannot be changed, that will not to work out, having our tears about that, having our sadness about that, and finding a way to move through. And so, um, and I am not a proponent of spanking or any kind of physical um, punishment uh, whatsoever. Historically, uh, where the, the SWAT on the bottom would have come into play was parents who were attempting to hurry up the tears to hurry up the acceptance of the thing that cannot be changed so that then the child can adapt and and come onto the same page. Um, Because we have these gross uh, distortions of the power dynamic and everything that plays out, uh, really what that looks like is parents who are hitting their their growing children um, who have these really by design immature brains that are just begging to be filled up with all of this juicy connection and, mm. and safe harbor and empathy and all of that good stuff so that they can become fully mature as adults. And when we, um, when we are hitting our children, um, we, we are robbing them of those opportunities. Um, one way that I've heard it said, uh, there's a local psychologist here, um, Gordon Neufeld, who talks about how our job is to grow up children who are hardy, not hardened. Ooh. And we gift them that hardiness by really championing their growth when they're we so that they can become resilient adults. When you um, when you force a hardening, uh, a closing down, a shutting out and numbing out reality for a child because you just make it unbearable. uh, Are they going to be able to make it through a war? Yeah. How's that going to look in a marriage? How's that going to look when they go to parent their own children? Wow. How's that going to look when they're navigating conflict in their place of employment? Not good. Yeah. It's not like we can go and spank our employees, right? Truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's, so that's interesting. So you've talked about, okay, so, so spanking is it's quite destructive. I think it's fairly common understanding now for most people. It's only becoming mainstream now the importance of understanding how you know bargaining and manipulation are going to affect the children so how do we discipline kids in a way that is actually going to help them grow mm-hmm. how do we create boundaries should we be creating boundaries in the first place or should we just let these little fuckers run riot <laughs> and do whatever they want and work it out themselves right. and just be there to catch them in case they fall right so we call that flowery meadows parenting where you just like release them to the flowery meadows <laughs> and watch them grow oh, I like that it never works out it's bad it's not good so um the idea is that, I mean, counterthetically, I wrote a book about discipline, which is really all about, like, don't discipline. And then people go, what? 
like we're just going to let the children roam free and um, and they can do whatever the hell they want whenever they want. Um, the reality is that we we don't need to like all these like ridiculous contrived cons strategies that we have the timeouts and the one two three countdowns and the consequencing and you know all this stuff that we do all the time to try and control our children's behavior. Um, all all of it's um, outlandish really when you think about the science of child development and so you can just stop doing all of that and instead think about how do you create a reality for children that allows them to feel safe to feel connected and to bump into um, the appropriate boundaries so they figure out the social norms of the world that they live in and what's going to be kind of required of them as they kind of go forth. And I often talk with parents about, you know, if you were kind of, think of like the biggest bridge that you drive over on a regular kind of basis. And we have here in the lower main end of British Columbia a bridge um, that's uh, very well known and super terrifying. It's old and it's really narrow and nobody likes driving on it. What is it? I want to go there. Um, now the name of it escapes me. It's going to come to me. I'm going to let marinate. Incubate. No, <laughs> no, by the end. Um, uh, and so if you were to come up on that, you want to go drive over it. That's so awesome. Okay, yeah. so you're going to be my example. Okay. Let's say you were coming up to this bridge, yeah. which maybe you've driven over a hundred times okay. with no real problem. Right? You've never driven off the bridge. You've never even bumped into the guardrails on the bridge. But let's say on this particular day, you drive Patella, the Patella Bridge. Okay. You drive up to it, and somebody has removed the guardrails from the bridge. Now, if I'm in a theater of a thousand people presenting this talk, and I say, How many of you are still going to drive across the bridge? There's going to be like, three kookalooks that put their hands up and say, oh, I, I go across. Am I right? right. <laughs> <laughs> However, you have to admit you're driving in the center lane mm -hmm. a little more slowly yeah. than you would have had the guardrails more cautious. Yeah. been in place. So the question then becomes, well, if we, if we can drive across the bridge a hundred plus times and never have used the guardrails, why are we so cautious? Why are we so fearful of mm. going across the bridge if somebody's taken the guardrails off? And the answer lies in why parents need to have boundaries, rules, norms, expectations for their children. Because they, the kids actually want that to exist. They want to know the safety of the guardrail is in place so that if they bump into it, it will, it'll contain yeah, them. Right. It'll hold them in place so that they can kind of stay on the, the straight and narrow path, if you will, of growing and developing the way that they need to, to live in the world that they're living in. And so, yes, you need rules. Yes, you need expectations. Yes, you need boundaries, but don't be an asshole about <laughs> how you put them in place. Yeah, right. right? Like if you can be firm yeah. and kind, I know you really want that cookie. It's so frustrating when mommy says no and you want the cookie. And no, you can't have it. Wow. And I, actually, I, know I actually feel mad. good about not getting the cookie right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I knew you're mad. If I were you, I'd be mad too. And my Empathy. answer is no. Right. Right? Yeah. And so it's about having boundaries and not being awful. So do you see some of the, because look, I guess it depends where you look as to whether or not you, how you assess, you know, how teenagers and millennials behave now. But do you think some of the challenges that we're seeing you know, with these younger generations coming through is perhaps they didn't have strong boundaries yeah. that were put in place. Because I know for myself, like um, 
I went into recovery when I was 19 for addiction. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, one of the things that I've become acutely aware of is the importance of structure and order and discipline. And the more structure I have in my life, the more order I have in my life, the more discipline I have in my life, the healthier I've become just as a human being. Yeah. But what's interesting is I've gone on to teach that to you know people who would not label themselves as addicts or in recovery, and I've seen the same levels of development in what you'd consider you know normal people by putting you know healthy boundaries and structures and discipline in place to become you know healthy human beings in general. And you mentioned it, and I just want to hit on this because I think it's an important part. How important is it for healthy human development to actually have strong boundaries in place and discipline and the discipline to enforce those boundaries? Mm-hmm. And even routines as well that uh, make those those boundaries easier to deal with. Incredibly important. And if you happen to be growing a child who has a sensitive kind of temperament, it's not just important, it's essential. They, they won't be able to manage without it because it creates such safety for them. And so having, you know, um, your routines, how you say hello, how you say goodbye, how you do Monday evenings, how you do Friday evenings, what Sunday morning looks like, how you clean up, what your, you know, song and dance is around brushing your teeth at night, how you, uh, how you manage disagreements, how you, how you just kind of navigate your world. We are creatures of habit. We love the safety and, and, um, containment, if I can use that word cautiously, uh, of, of knowing what's coming, of having, you know, an, an expectation for how this is all going to play out. And in fact, you know, for homes that are in crisis, parents that are in crisis, kids that are in crisis, number one first level intervention is to establish some routine and some structure. Yeah, right. Because it just, everybody yeah. takes a breath when we know where we're headed what's happening now, what's happening next, what we can expect when A, B, or C goes down. It just like everybody can take a breath. We all feel so much um, safer. And are the boundaries really critical when it comes to developing a healthy relationship with our environment, like feeling safe, mm-hmm. but also developing trust? Mm-hmm. Like how important are boundaries when it comes to you know feeling safe in this world, yes. but also developing healthy trust connections? Yeah, so boundaries within self. Yeah. To be able to express your own need, to be able to say what you want, to be able to uh, communicate what you know to be good for you, and then to hold that in relationship with other. Kids come into the uh, capacity to do that when they uh, are gifted the opportunity to experience that as young children. Which also, you know, we talk about boundaries and routines and sort of the more kind of like how your day looks and how you structure your environment. Um, But think about as adults, how um, if we confuse role and relationship, how gross we become with our children around boundaries, how intrusive we are, how in their space we are, how we talk over them and talk down to them and don't, don't recognize that they're like soulful beings, you know, who are here on this earth just like we are and, and that we really need to, I mean, in a, there's, a, there's safety in the hierarchy of the parent-child relationship. So there is sort of this alpha role that parent takes on, but with so much love and so much compassion. And if we can recognize our children as those kinds of, of beings, we would never do and say to them the things that we are often coached to do and say to our children. So... One, a gentleman I met once upon a time, he said, uh, talk to them as if they are a genius and a genius they will become. Mm, beautiful. Um, mm. And I'm, my son's going through this phase now where he's going, why, why, why? Oh, yeah. And what's interesting is when I first experienced this phase with other people's kids, I was like, oh God, fuck, kill me now. 
<laughs> but yeah, but now with Noah, like we was we sat down and watched a um, a series on Netflix called Cosmos. Mm-hmm. And because he, I'm pretty sure I've accidentally programmed him to become an astronaut by accident, just by singing Perfect. him songs and creating. Yes. Uh, yeah. And so he was just like, what's that? I say, what is? Why? What's that? What's that? Why? Why? And for me, I am just, I'm in awe of this time right now. Like yeah. the explanation for things, yeah. the explanation for why. But what I'm doing is I'm actually talking to him as if I'm talking to like yourself or like I'm talking to Matisse. I literally talk to him like he's an adult. And I'm not sure if I'm kidding myself, but he seems to have a level of comprehension that actually precedes what most people would assume a 3.8-year-old would be able to understand. Am I deluded or are they really able to comprehend at that level? Yeah, they can. And there'll be two levels of that. There's one thing to intellectually, in a crystallized way, comprehend you know, whatever it is that you're telling him and really like understand that. Uh, but the other thing is to be in the, in the dance with oh. you, you know, yeah. where he's just like, my dad's the coolest dad <laughs> in all the land ever. And he just told me this awesome thing and I love it, yeah. you know, where okay. he's really sort of um, like, there's an energy about that as well. And I can even see it as you described, yeah. you know, those conversations in your face. Yeah. But do you think the way that we talk to our kids actually has a fundamental effect on how fast they develop? Because, you know, you, mm. I hear some kids that are in his grade, he does Montessori, so he's in like a three to six-year-old classroom. But I do hear some kids at his school and even just at the playground that are his age that are talking as if they're babies. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, obviously that's coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So how important is it for us to not necessarily intellectualize everything to a point where yeah. perhaps it's complicating you know, yeah. um, descriptions and explanations, but how important is it for us to actually talk to them like they're, they're an adult or uh, that they're like a, a comprehensive human being? Like a genius. Yeah, yeah. a genius. I yeah. think it's a lovely, I mean, think of how you're honoring them by just having this um, base assumption that they are capable and that you find them capable and full of potential. Think about what you're, what you're transmitting to them and mm. speaking to them that way. And so I think that's a beautiful gift. The other thing that I have seen is that children will often, I mean, this isn't always why, but can be why they hang on to their baby voices, is it's because when they were wee babes, uh, they they got a little stuck there in terms of getting their needs met, and they uh, have discovered over time that if they can conjure the baby reaction, if they can elicit the sort of response that they got from their parents when they were babes of having them sort of come and at least physically connect to them, that their needs are somehow being more met than if they were to be kind of a bit more independent and not kind of calling that forth. And so you can hear the baby voice. I mean, you see already in a three, four-year-old how how off it sounds when they have the baby voice. So picture that in a 9, 10, 14, 15-year-old. 18-year-old, 24-year-old. Like I've met people in relationships before, especially in my earlier years, where all of a sudden this baby voice comes out and you're like, what the hell? And you get a little like... Yeah, like this doesn't make sense. So it's somebody going back to like age regressing really and how they're interacting to right. try and have their need met. So is it on some level destructive to be do, have the boo-boo, boo-boo, dee-dee-boo, dee oh, did that a baby have a boo-boo, like to a toddler? Like is that, mm. like maybe once in a while, I'm going to assume that's not going to be fundamentally destructive, yeah. but if we are constantly using that dialogue or that, that voice, mm-hmm. can that be something that over time can be damaging? Well, I think you need to be um, 
picking up what your kids are putting down and reading their cues. And so as your child is shifting out of that, then you need to be shifting out of that. We know for very, very young, like little wee babies, we call it motherese, which is quite an exclusionary term, but you could call it fatherese as well, which is that sing-songy voice that we use to talk with them. Um, And neurologically, it does light them up a lot more than the sort of monotone adult kind of voice. And so there is something about this natural way of how we speak to very young children children. Um, And as we tune into them and in being tuned into them, see them growing uh, and shifting in terms of their responses and and just kind of who they are and how they are, we should naturally see that shifting out of us as well so that our voice begins to match developmentally where they're at, which is no longer, you know, a a little one month old baby. Now they're three. You touched on something there um, Mm. around the vocal variety that is used, you know, when we, you know, use that particular voice. I discovered this about 18 months ago when my son was having a complete meltdown. No one could settle him. So I came down, I took him, you know, his toddler at this point. And then I just went, I literally just all of a sudden thought about um, the movie voice, in a world. And I just started (laughs) telling this like, in a world where Noah ruled supreme. And I started telling this story. Within five seconds, he was like, He'd stop crying and it, because wow. I was just using this massive vocal variety yeah. and it completely captured his attention. Mm. And it was so significant that I actually use that in my communication style with him now. Like when I want to get his attention or I'm, I'm trying to impact him, I'll use you know, large levels of vocal variety. And intellectually, it makes sense because the, these little soft psychologies are so easily distracted where they are right now. And the more, the more animation we can give them, the stronger the attention will be. How important is it for a parent to, to be considering you know, the variety and the, the, the vocal variety that we use when we communicate. So two things about that. I think, um, first of all, I always talk about the hamster wheel and how sometimes you got to bump them onto a new wheel. And so kids can get, especially when they've gotten big into a dysregulated state, that's the wheel they're on right yeah, now. Yeah. And to have some kind of a distraction action that you can kind of bring to bear on the situation. So for my boys, when they were about that age, I would have offered them a cold drink of water or something sensorial that would have right. kind of jolted them off that hamster wheel and maybe onto something different. And I can see how the introduction of this like very sort of theatrical voice. World. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love it. And so, so I, I sort of think on a sensory level, that's a, that's a real change in what they're experiencing. And you could uh, uh, essentially bump them off that hamster wheel and on to sort of... So like a sensory pattern interrupt. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing is, what a brilliant alpha way of stepping into the situation and being in the lead of it. Mm. Where you're just, you know, it's like stepping in um, and taking charge and letting them know you're right there and you've got this and you're not upset and nothing bad's about to happen, but here you are and you've got this, right? And so you're, you're present and you're, you're large and in charge in the loveliest way without having flipped your lid or anything along those lines. He would just be able to like literally just be like, oh, thanks, dad. You know, like, there you are. I lost you there for a second, but now I'm back online and I hear you. I see you. Thank you. Wow. Mm -hmm. What a perspective. Mm. Okay, that was good. So let's talk practical discipline for a second. And I want to talk practical as in, okay, this is a challenge that I've had with with Mm -hmm. Noah for a little while now. Okay. He's an incredibly loving child, caring child, nurturing child, but he loves to hit. Mm -hmm. And it's so out of character for his personality type. But it's been... For as long as I can remember, okay. You know, now you know I've 
kind of rationalised by going, well, he, it's something he'll grow out of. You know, I've been a, um, you know, I was a competitive fighter. I started martial arts when I was like 10. So I've, you know, there's, there's a very strong genealogy of, you know, learning how to, to, to use for combat. And so this part is like, well, shit, is, is there any part of this that he's picked up from the genealogy? And the second part of me is like, how do, how do I intervene in a way that is really healthy? Because I've, I've literally tried everything because we don't, we don't spank. We don't do um, timeouts, but I do, I do occasionally, like when it's extreme for a regulation technique, is use what I call the contemplation corner. Like if he's so extreme and so, and his meltdown is so big, I will literally walk him into the corner and say, look, I just want you to contemplate for a second, just stand there for a second. And normally within about a minute to a minute and a half, his temperament will come down, he'll be calm, and then we can have a conversation. So it's not something I'll, I'll pepper on a regular basis. But when it comes to the hitting, as I said, we've tried the contemplation corner, we've tried the bargaining, you know, I've tried to sit down and have the conversation with him, and I still don't know where I'm at with it. Like, from a practical sense, let's just say he walks in right now, walks over to Matthias, says hi to Matthias, and just gives him a big clock in the face, and he's just, but he doesn't see anything wrong with it. What's the best way for me to intervene in a way that will help him understand that that's a boundary that he's crossed, and, you know, help him re- and reinforce the hope of a different behaviour in the future in a similar situation. Mm-hmm. So, so I have a couple questions. Yeah, please. So would he always just clock, like, hey, Matthias, and then clocks him? Or is it is it often in a heated kind of moment? Never in, it's almost never in a heated moment. Huh. Like, he's not an angry, he's not, he's not an angry child. Okay. In 99% of the situations, it would, it started off with just my wife, my, my ex-wife, like, he would hit her, he never hit me, like, I was just not, a, like, I wasn't even something he would even consider. Uh, and then it was the nanny. And then, you know, and I've just observed that it comes out from time to time, rarely ever towards me and always typically towards feminine energy, hmm. uh, which, you know, is interesting but also concerning. Hmm. Um, and sometimes kids at school. Okay, I'm not concerned about it at all. Okay. He has um, basically no frontal lobe functioning, so he's not managing his impulses, period. You don't know him as well as I do, so come on. Let's Say again? <laughs> I said you don't know him as well as I do. His frontal lobes are working really hard. Really juicy. <laughs> yeah. Thick and rich and full of neural, neural connections. We expect that he is not going to be able to manage impulses well at this t- stage in life. Right, okay. The other thing that I've uh, recently been having a lot of dialogue about um, with my colleagues and my partner is the idea of what we call attention-seeking behaviors. And if we can change the word attention-seeking to connection-seeking, right? And so for some reason, and interesting that it's around feminine energy, who knows what's behind all of that? Oftentimes to get my attention, so... Right. Yeah. So, so there's this connection-seeking energy behind it. And so the, the answer to uh, kind of reshaping that, first of all, what's your script around it? Hands are not for hitting. Oh, script. That's our rule. Right. As a family, yeah. that's how we do things. In this family, we don't use our hands to solve our problems. Hands are not for hitting. Now, we say for adults that the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Not true for your children. Your children will have the best of intentions and not be able to deliver on them. And so just because you've said to him, hands are not for hitting in this family, that is not how we do do things. We use our gentle hands. That's how we manage. Um, uh, And then you say to him, can I count on you to keep your, your hitting hands put away? And he'll say, yes, daddy. And then he'll mess it up probably the same day, 
right? Um, because he's a child and he has no impulse control. And so that's how it's supposed to be. But you continue to give him the script. Remember what the rule is. Hands are not for hitting. Right. And not in a pissed off way, yeah. not in a mean way, but in a firm way, right. that will not happen again. Calm assertive. Yeah, okay. calm assertive, yeah. firm but kind. Yeah, right? okay, I like that. Um, and then figure out what's the unmet need. If it's connection-seeking behavior, then there's obviously a need for connection somewhere around. And so if you can kind of be not even just in that moment, but is it often in the morning time? Is it often in the evenings when he comes home from being at school all day and he needs his fill of connection because he's um, kind of been emptied out? Is it, are there other sort of um, antecedents or setting events that would sort of have him needing to kind of top up his reserves of having been filled by you or by his mom? Um, and, and however you can just like breathe more connection into his day, uh, you'll, you'll be able to kind of um, preventatively get in front of it and then know it's going to happen again. Right. But it won't be happening when he's seven or eight. Okay. That's good. Okay. So I'm going to see if I can um, put together a, a little bit of a framework around the, is there a framework for discipline without damage? Because what I heard you say was script and I was like, oh, I like that. Like, what's your script for that? Mm-hmm. So as parents, when it comes to disciplining our children and not threatening the connection and not using physical violence, is there like a, an actual framework, like script comes first, um, then question comes, like yeah. what's the framework? Child misbehaves? What's the framework? Yeah. So in my book, I talk about nine stepping stones, nine which stepping you, stones. Like you'll never in one moment be like, okay. <laughs> All right. What was, the, what was fucking number eight? <laughs> right? oh my God. Even as I sit here now, I'm like, should I really tell them the nine stepping stones? Because I don't know if I remember them all. <laughs> so imagine when you're in a moment with your child, like there's yeah. just no way that you're going to be able to pull up, you know, one, two, three, yeah. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, but the idea is in reading through the nine stepping stones, it starts to breathe some life into what does this like in a concrete way look like, you know, when you get home and Noah, that's his name, uh, is coming at you with something and you're like, oh yeah, no, this is not working. How are we going to manage that? And so uh, there's a number of things that I uh, can talk parents through and I'll give you some examples of what those stepping stones would look like. So one would be to um, get in there and the first thing is to respond with some connection. You look so upset. You're having a really hard time, which is we all want to be seen and heard. That's connection. I see you. Is it important for us to get down to their level? Yeah, to, you can some, like to be sort of on yeah. eye level to make sure that they're there and seeing you. So when yeah. he, when you were describing the meltdown that he had yeah. that nobody could get into, yeah. he didn't even know you were there. Yeah, he was like... Until you changed to your big movie voice and yeah. then he was like, oh, hey, <laughs> how's it going? Um, and so to be able to enter into the situation and be like, yeah, I, you're having a hard time. This is a terrible thing, Right. Um, so that's so that's not going to reinforce the situation because there'd be some people that would go, well, well using because for me, I, I hear that language like, well, I'm telling him he's having a bad day. Do I want to be presenting this circumstance and giving okay, him a reference? Okay, think about the last time you were having a terrible day, yeah, and you came into a space with somebody you loved, yeah. be it a romantic partner or a friend, uh, and you were like, I'm having a terrible day. I just and don't use that language anymore. Okay. You may not. Yeah. Uh, let's say you're having an off day, whatever yeah. your language is, and they're like, yeah, mm-mm. What are you going to do next? Not your evolved self, okay, your my, child self. Well, I'd probably want to get a little bit, I, would feel, I wouldn't feel understood. I'd probably... Now you're going to prove your point. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And get louder. Yeah, okay. And bigger. Yeah. And more intense. Okay. Right? So make sure they feel seen and heard. Right. You come in and you say, oh, this is terrible. You're so frustrated. And 
This needs to stop. We do not, my boys, we, I was explaining to you earlier, we grow really big boys. Uh, and so they would be, you know, getting into it in the living room about something. And if I were just like, boys, hands are not for hitting, <laughs> right? Like somebody would die. <laughs> somebody needs to get in there. And so I'd launch my body in between the two of them and I'd be shoving them apart and I'd be saying things like, this is not working. You're very frustrated and it must stop. We are not using our hands to solve this problem. You will be staying here and I will be right back. Right. You are coming with me. And I know it's hard to be a big brother. I'll be right back. Oh, you're so frustrated to the other child. Right? Like that's how I'm yeah. moving in around the space. So, so we're not trying to paint it with positivity. We're trying to address it based on the reality. Like I see you and I hear you and yeah. this is not going well. Yeah. So the first thing is to meet them where they're at and, uh, and meet them with some relationship and some connection. I get it. It's hard. You're frustrated. The second thing is to get in and drop a flag and then get out. And so lots of parents have the tendency to be like, how many times have I told you you're not <laughs> supposed to blah, blah, blah. And already you're, I mean, there's no lid. Yeah. And so like you're talking to the reptilian brain. So how's that going to work out? Yeah. There is no lid. They're not comprehending. You're like Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. That, that's not working. And so stop talking. And my challenge to parents is to get your flag in, your warning flag. Right. Six so words the flag of, is the warning flag. Mm -hmm, like right. you're dropping the flag, okay. like the red flag, yep. right? Six words or less. Hands are not for hitting. Right. This needs to stop. Right. <laughs> we don't use those words. <laughs> like whatever it is. Right. That's it. And then get out. If you stay in too long, what's going to happen is their defenses are going to come up. Their right. attachment, um, we call it defensive detaching when you're not feeling understood and you're feeling like you're being sort of... Defensive detaching. Yes, I they're like going to yeah. put the wall up. And now you're not going to have any cooperation whatsoever. You thought you didn't have cooperation before. Well, hold on. Right. <laughs> it's going to get big now. Yeah. So you get in and you get out. And then you need, you need to move forward with getting them onto something different. And so we're just going through the reset button. And that might be the big movie voice. It might be getting them a drink of water. It might be moving them to a new space. Something that you can do to get them off. Right. Um, the hamster so again, wheel. some phys physical in intervention, physical interruption, a pattern interruption that is sensory and, and large sensory. Yeah, big yeah. sensory. Right. I had one mom, uh, her boy was on the autism spectrum and it was really challenging to yeah, get him off be. of the hamster wheel. Yeah. And so she would just get an ice cube and gently brush it two or three times on his cheek and he'd be like, oh, hey. Because he was so locked down in where he was, yeah. he couldn't actually climb out of it until you gave him that um, interruption. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I encourage parents to do is to uh, avoid explaining. So in the moment, this is not the time to yeah. go into why we're not giving you the cookie before dinner yeah. and that it'll spoil your appetite because what's the next words out of your child's mouth? But why? And no, it won't. No, okay, if yeah, I give so you this cookie, yeah. you'll not eat your dinner. Yes, I will. <laughs> I promise, promise, promise. Have they accepted your no? No. Not why? Well, because they believe something different. Yeah, and you're still talking. Wow. You're giving them all these little escape routes. You might eat your dinner, but your brother won't. Well, I'll hide in the pantry. He'll never know. <laughs> right? Is he accepting your no? Why? Because you're still talking. Right. So stop explaining. There are no explanations until your child has firmly accepted the no. And you'll know because their energy will change. Yeah. Okay, mom. Oh, I love that. That was big. You know, if we eat our cookies before dinner, it spoils our appetite, right? Yeah. That's when you explain. Right. Right? Um, and then the other thing is that there is a time and place for debriefing it. 
the time and place is not while the lid is flipped. Yeah, right. And so to wait for the lid to come back on, for your child to be regulated, for them to be settled, for them to be calmed, which may take five seconds, five minutes, five hours, or if you have a teenager, five days. <laughs> and then when yeah. it's back in place, yeah. then you come back around and you say, hey, we need to talk about a little earlier when you said hi to Matthias and walloped him on the side of the head. Right. We don't do that. So we revisit that. Mm -hmm. and, and because as, as humans, we want to close the communication loop. Yeah. We want that to be resolved. If we don't resolve that for our children, they catastrophically resolve it themselves by going to the worst possible, daddy hates me, right. Matthias is mad at me, you know, yeah. those kinds of things. And so we want to resolve that for them. We want to close the loop. So do make sure you come back around and revisit. Yeah, I like that. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was powerful. Thank you for that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I keep having little tears of inspiration, like that just drop out of my left eye, which is, I think, the soul eye. So this is whatever's happening. I love that. It's soul deep. Ah, okay. So have we talked about how we... In well, actually, let, I'll ask you the question because I know we've kind of skirted around. We've talked about discipline, uh, and I, I believe we've touched on this, but it would, I'm going to ask the direct question. Like, how do we instill a boundary in a healthy way? Mm-hmm without crushing their spirit. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of what we need to give our children is to communicate what is needed uh, for self and in various situations that will arise as they go through life. And so putting a boundary in place in a healthy way is without uh, strings attached, without any sort of um, manipulative energy, putting into the space between us and them, right. this is how it's going to be. And... I understand you're upset. Right. It's, it's that beautiful balance of being firm and kind. And I always talk about, um, <laughs> I grew up on the prairies here in Canada, Alberta. Oh, wow. Okay, so Liz my ex-wife is from Saskatchewan. So no yeah. kidding. Yeah, so I've been to Saskatoon many to times. Oh, I'm headed to Saskatoon in a couple weeks. Really? Yeah, oh my God, small world. <laughs> and so country music was part of how I grew up. And there's this song, and now I can't think of the artist, um, but I'll start walking your way, you start walking mine. Right. We'll meet in the middle beneath that old Georgia pine. Oh, <laughs> Somebody will wow. know. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I always think. That wasn't think, Pikes, was it? Mm, Northern Pikes? No. No? Okay. I always think about that as the firm but kind dance. Where, and often, particularly in two parent households, um, you'll, but also in single um, parent households, where you'll have, we tend to kind of identify with either being the firm parent or being the kind parent. It's hard to find both those things existing simultaneously at the yeah, same right. time. But if you can think about like, the view from the top of this, this mountain is a brilliant view. And that's where firm and kind live together. And if you get too firm, you'll roll down this side of the mountain and, and become an asshole. If you get too kind, you roll down this side of the mountain, you're like this like jellyfish sure. parent yeah. where there's no there's no guardrails on your bridge and yeah, it freaks right. your kids out, right? Yeah. And so in terms of um, putting healthy boundaries into place, if you can think about what it means to be firm and kind, like that's a beautiful combination. And that's where um, the healthy imposition of a boundary will flow from. Oh, I love that, that's mm. fantastic. Um, okay. All right, there's someone that I want to go next. It's driven by a couple of questions we've had on Snapchat and Instagram and also my own situation. Um, so my wife and I, unfortunately, we separated about three and a half months ago now. I think it was about in May. Uh, we only, um, uh, she moved out, I think it was maybe six weeks ago. So we're in this situation right now. It's very amicable so far. There's been a little, there was one small hiccup, but we're very amicable, both what I'd consider to be, you know, uh, conscious 
parents mm -hmm. with the best yeah. intentions for yeah. our son and also mutually health, healthy connections with, our, with each other. But we're embarking on um, nesting. So nesting is something that you know, I became aware of. Uh, I heard a buzzword in an interview once and then I started to research it and it became quite timely when, when, the, when the separation took place. So when we talk about separation, because I think for a lot of people, you know, I came from a, a broken home and my, I, I think for me, one of my ideals was like when I get married, it's going to be for life. When I have a child, you know, I'm going to give them what I didn't have. You know, essentially trying to heal many of my own wounds. And when the, first, when the concept was first you know, introduced, the, the idea of separation was first introduced, which was about two years ago when my wife first uttered the words, I was completely devastated. Like I never would have imagined in a million years that I would have found myself in that situation. And then over time, I kind of, you know, slowly desensitized to the idea because I started to realize, well, shit, if this actually happens, I need to be mentally strong enough to be there for myself, but most especially for Noah, because, sure. you know, if this were to happen, I can't lose, you know, I can't lose my shit. So I started to look at also the research. Yeah, you know, what happened well, you know, when kids that come from broken homes, you know, are X percentage more likely to develop unhealthy, you know, either codependent relationships or addictions or anything else. And for many parents, myself especially, I was like, I was like, holy shit, you know, I, I've got to do whatever I can to save this relationship, even if that means sacrificing myself, because I need to give this kid the best chance at life. And then reality kicked in and it was, you know, and it just wasn't going to play out that way. And then I started to, you know, adapt to the idea that, you know, okay, well, obviously this is the way it's going to be for now. We're, we're obviously going to separate uh, and we've got to do the best job that we can to ensure that we raise, you know, a healthy little being. So nesting is a concept that maybe some people aren't familiar with, which is whereby the primary house is where the, the child lives and the parents, you know, they, they basically stop in and out for whether it be two days at a time, three days at a time or a week at a time in between. Uh, and we're doing that quite well. But I'm curious to know from your experience how... Uh, how has nesting, do you have any experience with nesting at all? I haven't done that myself. Yep. I have many client families that have okay, done that. Fantastic. Sure. So from your experiencing, is nesting something that should be considered in the situations where it's amicable, where it can work, mm -hmm. as, a, as a healthy next step to limit the amount of emotional disturbance and potential destruction that can go on in a child's mind when their parents are separating? Yeah. So when you think about what's happening in the family dynamic when the parents are separating, there's a lot of change and a lot of disruption and a lot of loss. Loss of the family unit in the form that we once knew it, uh, but also little losses uh, like, you know, mornings look different or uh, other kinds of changes are happening. And so really, if we're thinking about the child's best interests, if it's amicable and it can be managed in a healthy way where there isn't a lot of conflict around it, Yep. The idea of nesting is a really beautiful idea because it really does minimize the change for the child. And uh, always being mindful that children don't create that. Yeah. They don't create separations. They don't ask for that. Those are adult decisions that happen in adult relationships. Um, and my view is that it is thus up to the adults to figure it out. It's up to the adults to take the hit where they can yep. uh, in shielding their children. And so if one of the things is that you're inconvenienced by having to come and go from your home uh, where your child gets to really enjoy this sort of continuity of sameness, at least in terms of their physical surrounds. Like what a lovely thing to do for your child mm. who's three yeah. and you're 42. Yeah. So guess who gets to handle it? Yeah. You get I, to handle it, and right? I, and I agree, like it is a massive inconvenience, but at no point do I look at it as a massive inconvenience because I know it's just something that I have to do. You have eyes only for him. That's yeah, I'm what a little bit biased, I am. Mm -hmm. um, Which is beautiful, it's as it should be. Well, as long as it's healthy, you know, for yep. me, that's most important. But I'm curious to know, like when we, as, you know, as 
conscious parents enter into the separation you know, yeah. process. We enter into the co-parenting dynamic. You know, we're starting off with nesting. What's a good time frame? And I'm actually asking this not just for myself but for other people as well. What is a healthy time frame when it is amicable to, to nest to a period where it's like, okay, we've, d- it, the, the, we've he done understands, this. we've done enough. Yeah. It's now time to actually start you know, navigating the migration of you know, two households. Mm-hmm. I think that that will depend on uh, two things, the age of your children yeah. and also their temperament. And so uh, in every family dynamic and every, every constellation of siblings and combinations therein, that's going to look a little bit different and you are going to have to use your intuition as a parent to figure out what the ideal is. Um, as a sort of ballpark, most of my families that I work with, uh, that has lasted somewhere between 6 and 12 months. Right. Uh, and then people start to get a little bit of a niche to... Uh, even the kids, like they want to have landed. They want to know that they're where they're going to be. And everybody, you know, as, as the, the initial shock wave of, of this happening and what that's all going to look and feel like kind of begins to subside. And we've had our tears about it and we've sort of adapted a little bit and come to terms with some of our futility around that. Um, that um, we, we all have this desire for growth. We mm. all have this desire for stepping forward. And so, you know, it's it's when those um, the energy like that starts to present itself that you then you have to listen to that voice and yeah. then know that that's probably time for you and for your children to, to start to think about what's this now going to look like? How is it going to take shape? I think it's probably important also to, to help people at home understand who are listening to this, you know, what situations don't suit nesting. Because mm. I think sometimes, you know, parents go, well, it's a new concept, it's new, it's, fan, it's shiny, we'll, we'll do that, not realizing that there's, because you, know, you mentioned the key word, because there's one key word that if that's present, nesting's not going to work. So under what circumstances does nesting not work? So when things are not amicable, when things are uh, very challenging, what will happen is there'll be so much contamination of the space because the parents aren't able to regulate, the parents aren't able to be in a good place themselves by being in that, the physical surrounds of their home, feeling the intrusiveness of the other um, parent, for example, uh, having to watch their backs, you know, all of the gross stuff that starts to happen when conflict really mushrooms around all of that. When it's that kind of... Yeah. Um, feeling around, then it's possible that nesting's not going to be the best. Um, and know that you are now introducing more loss, more rupture for children who are already enduring a significant yeah. loss, right? And so, um, so there's a sacrifice involved and you have to sort of be thinking about like, if you need to be the best possible parent at this time, that's very, very challenging. Uh, how is that going to be accomplished? How can you live that out and as best as possible give your kids some continuity in their lives while everything around them shifts and changes? Is there an easy answer for how how do we separate in the healthiest way in Mm. order to preserve the psychology of the child to, to be yeah. able to blossom into you know an incredible healthy human being yeah this so i in terms and, which of, is a tough question to yeah. answer when you consider the emotions that's often involved yeah the thing is that if we can think of families who are separating and divorcing are not by definition broken they are simply taking on a new form mm, a I new like shape um, they continue to exist as a family for now and into all of eternity. That's, that's the family, 
right? Uh, and maybe you'll add members to the family. Maybe, maybe there'll be other changes that um, have that family taking shape in different ways as time marches on. But you will always be a family. So you and Noah and Noah's mother are always mm. going to be a family. You are not broken unless you allow yourselves to be broken. Yeah, right. And so what does that look like to, to, to remain whole, to be an intact family uh, where there's been divorce and separation? And really what that is, the first thing is that we have to put the needs of our children front and center. We get so bogged down in our own egos when things become conflictual around divorce and separation. But you've been through separation mm -hmm. yourself? Okay. I have with within the last child? year. Oh, wow. Yes, with two children. How long were you married, if you don't mind me asking? 16 years. Holy smokes. Yeah. Well, my condolences, but I'm, I'm sure it was for the right reasons. I think so. Yeah. And as we emerge through in terms of understanding, like, what does that look like? Yeah. Uh, you know, are we going to allow ourselves to be broken or are we going to find our way forward in the best interests of our children and ourselves? As, as human soulful beings. How, how is that gonna take shape? How are we gonna co-parent? How are we gonna uh, find our way through all of this and be whole? And so my understanding of that from an attachment uh, perspective is that that dynamic continues. And so we had a family meeting on Saturday morning just this past weekend. Um, uh, my children's father has uh, recently started dating and so there was the... the this is the first relationship since split? Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. And so there's angst around that. Like right. they're like, what does that mean and how's that gonna go? Uh, and it was wonderful to sit down with them, with their dad and myself and our two boys having this conversation and let them know that whoever daddy loves, yeah. and if it's, if it's a big love, a love that's here for a long while, I will love that person too. That person now becomes part of my family. And why does that person become part of my family? Because I love their father. Yeah. And why do I love their father? Uh, well, I love him as a human being, and I love him always and forever because he's your father. Yeah, right. And so like, you could see them be like, oh, okay. That was, it sounds to me like a fundamental development moment for them both. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, you can see how, how in a, when you're very conscious about, um, you know, all of the stuff that can come up in self and another and the projections and the transference and all the things happening with your children and in the spousal relationship, when you can really work you know, and we all fall down and we all have moments where it's not terribly conscious. <laughs> it's ego driven and it's yucky. Um, the human but, experience. Mm -hmm. but if we can continue to choose again, yeah. if we can continue to get back on our feet and uh, find our way to wholeness, to have uh, unlimited um, uh, honoring of what family is in all of its different constellations and iterations. That's our new reality, right? As, yeah. as a generation uh, where I think the divorce rate sits at 55 plus percent now. Um, I think in Australia it's two and three. Yeah, yeah. so 66 percent, right? Yeah. So Jeez. that's what it is. Yeah. And so how are we going to navigate that consciously? How are we going to uh, find our way through that? Um, understanding that we are all souls, yeah. that we are all here to sort of evolve and that this is happening because that's the way that it needed to be for the evolution of our souls on this, on this planet in this lifetime. And so how do I know it's perfect? Because it needs to be this way. So you touched on a good point there, the introduction of a, you know, a new person into the, the family relationship. And that, you know, as I'm learning, everyone moves at different speeds. And what I'm curious to know, is there 
is there a strategy or is there a way to look at introducing new relationships um, into that unit to ensure that we preserve you know, whatever connections that the child is making to that situation? Yeah. So let's talk about the attachment dynamic and the concept of polarization because it comes to bear very directly on the question that you've asked. And so in our attachment mind, particularly when things are emotionally um, big for a child, they have eyes but for one person, one attachment figure. And so if you, like in a completely different setting, if you ever talk to childcare providers or teachers of very young children, they'll, uh, you'll show up at the end of the day to pick them up. And then all of a sudden, they'll start to act out and be really crazy just as you arrive on the scene to pick them up. And the teacher can often be heard saying, I promise you they were not like this before you came, (laughs) right? And then the parents are like, what is it about me that I bring this out of my child? What's happening is they only have attachment eyes for one. And so now we've introduced another and they're like, they're trying to figure out like, where do I look and how, and it's a dysregulating experience. And so now let's bring this to bear on the concept of separation and divorce and the, and the realigning of the family unit. And so let's say, uh, there's two parents, parent, uh, one and parent two. Um, if we can go through separation and divorce with both of them being right here, So that the child, energetically, when they look out, they only have to look in one direction. Because mommy's on the same team as daddy, and daddy's on the same team as mommy, and daddy and mommy love each other, even if they're not together. There's love that flows in that relationship because we are family, right? And so they look out, and they only have to look in one direction. They don't have to navigate all the yucky stuff that happens when parents alienate and bad talk and do all that kind of stuff. Because if if we're doing that, we've created this dynamic where now they're gonna be looking back and forth. So now we're bringing in another adult, right? So daddy has a new girlfriend or mommy has a new boyfriend. We want that person to land on the same attachment page. Like we want the relationship with child to flow through the existing relationships here so that the child still only has to be looking one direction. Now of interest, when the child is in right relationship with the father, the introduction of mother's new partner um, will go much more smoothly. When the child is in right relationship with mother, the introduction of the father's new partner will also go much more smoothly. It's like if you're in right relationship with um, your father, that another male has come on the scene in your family is gonna play out for you much more easily because you aren't going to be having to preserve loyalty with your dad. Okay. And especially if your dad says, you know what, whoever mommy loves, A, I trust her, she has wonderful judgment, and B, I love her, and I will love that new person as a valued member of our family. Imagine all of the children in the world, the 66% of the kids Mm. in Australia, who are just gonna be like, thank God! Like it releases them from all of this yuckiness. And so, you know, for there to be that kind of relational dynamic in and amongst all the adults involved, that there's openness and flow and communication, and not that you're going on family vacation together necessarily, but that you've created space and room for all of you to exist without our egos being challenged and having to rise to defend ourselves and all of those kinds of complications. And because it can be quite threatening for the role as well, I imagine for some parents, you know, when 
you know, another potential partner is, you know, put on the table to be introduced, it's like, well, you know, hang on, you know, the, is my role in jeopardy here, which can bring up, which is what's happening for me. Like, it's like, it's sure. bringing up all this interesting yes. stuff that I didn't even think yeah. that was inside. So lucky you. Yeah, I know, right? Because now you get to now heal get to that part of yourself, right? Um, now, just, I don't want this to sound like a loaded question, and I am asking for, you know, for people at home and also for myself, is there a, t- like, is there a, is there, are there things that we need to be aware of when we are considering introducing new people into that family dynamic? Is there a, an appropriate time frame? Is there an appropriate length that the relationship should be going before we even consider that so that we're not creating even more change and even more time to involve for the child? Yeah, and so I don't have an easy answer for you on that. However, I would suggest to you that your children have come through, you know, for any family where there's yeah. this changing dynamic, um, and not that we're broken, but rather that we're, we're sorting ourselves out and we've taken on this new form and now we're figuring out how to sort of navigate through that. Uh, when there's been big change like that, the last thing that you want to do is have this sort of, um, you know, chain of different people coming and going from your child's life uh, because you're just introducing more loss yeah. and more loss and more loss. So to be conscious of that, yeah. uh, to know when you're meeting your own selfish ego kinds of yeah. needs versus really sort of soulfully enter- entering into a relational space with another human being that's going to partner with you in a spiritual kind of way yeah, right. as we journey through life. And so, you know, it depends on the level and the dynamic of the relationship. It depends on your history with that person. It depends, yeah. you know, it depends on a lot of things uh, in terms of how soon is too soon and yeah. when do you introduce and how long should you be in the relationship that there's no hard and fast rules. And okay. so I think that we all have to sort of feel, feel our way out. through that intuitively. intuitively. Okay. And you know, like the, the thin wafer that is what we're abs- we're like concretely conscious about and the ocean underneath. It's in the ocean that your intuition sort of like comes out from that. And, and it's full of wisdom. Yeah. So when you have like a sense about things, listen to that. It's probably guiding you in okay. the right direction. I think that's great advice. And look, it's the, I find this is to be an incredibly exciting time because, you know, I haven't thought about dating for a very long time. But now that I am, it's not like before, you know. It's not like, well, hang on, I can just go and, you know, get online, jump online, go and meet someone and just carry on as if I was when I was in my early 30s. Well, you could, well, but could, how's but that going to work How's out? that going to play out, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not going to be great for, for, for the little guy. So what would you give as advice to, to perhaps parents that are going through a separation right now and they're still trying to find their way with egos being present and maybe perhaps a little bit of conflict in play? Is there a bit of a, and maybe it might be a little bit of tough love or a little bit of a, a warning that might kind of just, you know, act as a gestalt or an interruption to go, well, hang on, we need to put our shit to the side here because we're actually dealing with the, you know, the potential life and generations of future generations to come from what we're doing right now. What would you, what would you do to really wake people up to the importance of separating in a really healthy and productive way? In terms of their, the well-being of their children. Yeah, and themselves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that if we can take a breath and go inside ourselves and really connect with who we are, really understand the, 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 the light of every being involved 
in the circumstance, even if we're, uh, you know, in a challenging dynamic with our soon-to-be former spouse, if we can see them for who they really are, mm. not get lost in the crust of the ego, which can create all sorts of noise and allow you to amass all sorts of evidence so that you can hate them and get your lawyer all over them and those kinds of things. But if, if, we, can, uh, if we can really sort of see through that, to the light of who they are. Mm. Uh, and you know, as our children react and their behaviors become challenging and things become difficult, if we can see through that to the light of who they are and just remember, like we're all friendly souls. We're all here just trying to figure out the same thing. Um, we can consciously step forward in a way that's going to allow everybody to be much more settled and much more whole and much less wounded by the process. I, I'm, I'm living this all out as I'm speaking to you yeah, about this today. Yeah. Um, and so it's not, it's not going to be my next book like <laughs> too, gonna, soon. too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but I really do think that there's a, there's a place for having a more public conversation about divorce without I damage. I have to agree. Right? Like how wow. are we going to navigate Please write that? that book. Okay. Please write Divorce Without Damage. That, that would, that's a great title. I've already got it started. You already got it started? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So but it's, a, it's a little ways off. I got to live some of it up first. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the best way to teach. You know, oftentimes sure. we're here to learn. We're here to teach. What we're, we're here to teach what we need to learn the most. Sometimes, you know, the wounded healer. The wounded healer. Mm. Yeah. I, wow. I've actually never heard that before, mm -hmm. but that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So let's talk to the people who are perhaps a little bit more into their separation. They're now in a co-parenting environment. Mm -hmm. What is there? Is there an ideal way to co-parent? Is there a? Is there a? Is there a? Is there a user's manual, a how-to guide? There isn't yet. We can talk about right. creating one. You're going to be writing one soon. Right. But yeah. um, you know, the whole thing about co-parenting is to make sure that the needs of the children are front and center uh, and that the egos of the parents aren't getting in the way of that, that we're really able to come on to the same page and talk through, you know, what's happening, that the communication channels are open. What happens for children is that if they in any way feel like they're bridging the gap, like they're having to take information back and forth because parents aren't communicating, that they're having to listen to the chirping of another parent um, about, you know, the mom that they love or the dad that they love. The, all of that's creating separation all around them, all sorts of, of disconnection. And so in your co-parenting dynamic, what can you be doing to make sure that you are minimizing any separations where possible? So when we talked about nesting and those mm -hmm. kinds of things, what are you doing to minimize the separations that exist and the losses and the ruptures that can come with the changing family dynamic? And where they can't be minimized, what are you doing to bridge them, to build a bridge over the separation so that they aren't so impactful? And so when a child is in the other parent's home and they're missing this parent, what is that parent doing to bridge the child back? Oh, wow. So that the parents are in the lead. The parents are taking uh, responsibility yeah, right. for making sure it's all flowing. That the parent ensures yeah. that the phone call happens. That the parent has the ritual yeah. every night of gazing out at the star and telling the, the child that mommy's gazing at the same star. And isn't it magical that we can all look up at this twinkling star together? You know, like I made that up on the spot. No, but, you but know, I like the, it. But I, I see the, the intent there. Right? The idea is that we... Fill the gap. I'm missing mommy. Mommy loves you. Mm -hmm. Mommy loves you. Right. Remember, do you want to call mommy? Should we FaceTime mommy now? 
Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful children's storybook called The Invisible String, uh, which doesn't come to bear on the concept of uh, divorce and separation directly. But the idea is that we, uh, when we love somebody, our hearts are connected by this invisible string. And if you want to feel that person and their presence, you just got to tug on the string. And mommy will feel it, (laughs) daddy will feel it, and they'll tug back and you wait. You'll know what that feels like when oh they do. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, see, that gives me goosebumps. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you text Harley right now and ask her to order that book? Okay. <laughs> that. Wow. Okay, that's cool. So tell me about your see it, feel it, believe it approach to parenting. See it, feel it, feel it, be it. Sorry. See it, feel it. What did I say? Believe it. See it, feel it, be it. But in the being of it, you are kind of becoming a believer of it. So yeah. that was a lovely little slip. Um, so see it, feel it, then be it. The majority of contemporary, um, parenting literature and practices, um, stops at see it. And so when I was writing, uh, my book and in all of the workshops and teaching that I do, I really came to understand the problem that we have is that we are looking at the outside. We see the hitting hands and we don't like them. We see the child who's not doing as we've asked them to do, and we don't like that. And we're stopping there and wanting to address that piece of things. But that's not the whole thing. And and if we stop right there, what we're going to look for are really scripted strategies. Timeouts. Yeah. One to three magics. (laughs) That kind of stuff, right? Manipulation. Absolutely. Because that's all you see. You just want the behavior to stop. You don't see everything that's behind it. Right. And yet, if we go to the scripted things, first of all, they're all sacrificial plays. And secondly, do you think that you're actually in charge when your child sees you like thumbing through the parenting manual to figure out what like stepping stone eight is? You're not in charge. When I work with parents in my office, I say to them, please do not tell your child you're coming here. There's no faster way to dethrone yourselves than to tell your kid you got to come speak to a psychologist to figure them out. They just need to know that you get this. Right. They need to be able to lean into you that way. Yeah. And so, um, I forget the question. Be, sorry, see uh, yes, at least feel I feel better now. You did that just for me. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. See it, feel it, be right. it approach. Yeah. So we need to be able to move past the external. We need to go very quickly into the feeling of it. And so when you see a child hit, when you see a child losing it, when you see a child struggling, think about them and what must be happening inside. Go beyond the seeing very quickly into the feeling. And if you can go there, like if you can get behind the crust of the external and actually get inside their mind, inside their soul, and really feel what is happening for them, you will not but be able to help yourself of being for them what they need you to be in that moment. Mm. And you don't need me to tell you. Like yeah. you don't need me to say first you're gonna say this and then you're gonna say that and then you're gonna do blah, blah, blah. Right? You'll just become for them oh, in the moment. Powerful. So that's the see it, then the feel it, then the be it. In and describing, the be it is consequential. The, yeah, the, the being part. is what you're, going, what you're going to step into alongside them because you're feeling them. You know, when I talk about this at workshops, I use the example of, let's say you go home this evening and you're sitting down to an evening cup of tea and your front doorbell rings and you open your door and on your front porch is your best friend sobbing inconsolably with grief. What are you going to do? Right? And so if you're going to stop at see it and 
feel like, oh my God, I need to figure out what I'm supposed to do when I have grief-stricken friends, you'll look at them really awkwardly. You won't be able to get into their, their mind, into their soul and feel where they're coming from. And you'll be like, just one second, will you run back into your living room and pull the book off the shelf that gives you the four-step strategy for consoling grief-stricken friends, right? And so as your friend watches you do that, how are they feeling? How awesome is it that they showed up on your porch? How delighted are they with that choice? Right? They're probably thinking, why am I here and who are you? Ugh, bye. Right? Instead, what most people are going to do when they open their door and see their grief-stricken friend on their front porch is they're going to be like, oh my God, what happened? They'll step out, they'll throw their arms around them, they'll love them up, they'll pull them into their house, they'll pour them copious amounts of tea, they'll wrap blankets around their shoulders, they'll rub their backs, they'll talk them through, I mean, they'll do whatever they do that's going to come out of them really naturally. Why? Because they went beyond seeing. Mm. They went into feeling out of feeling becomes being. So if you can see it and then quickly move into feeling it, you will be for your child what it is that they need. So I'm noticing in your methodology, there's a very, there's very strong levels of empathy and connection. Yes. Like it's almost like those are, if I look, if I'm, and again, if I'm wrong, please correct me from what I've heard, like it's almost like there's this umbrella of empathy and connection that drives all of the, all of the, the things that we're trying to essentially achieve. Mm-hmm. So what do we do in this situation where perhaps, you know, the parents had a wound and they lack empathy or they don't have empathy? How, how yeah. does someone go about learning to become empathetic? Yeah. Do your own work. Right. Good answer. So where are you not being empathetic towards self? Mm. If you can't be empathetic toward your child, it's because you lack the capacity to have empathy for self somewhere in you. Yeah. That's what's happening. And now you've projected that onto your dynamic with your child. Right. The other thing that I will do when I'm working with families and and people come at all different places in life. And sometimes the reality is their work is not happening right now because we're in survival mode and we just got to get to tomorrow. And so then what we do is we broaden the lens and we look to the village who in the village can be available to be the connection person for this child while the parent is not available. Is there a big brother? Uh, That's a social program that we have. people that will come and hang out with your kid. Oh, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Not the TV show, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that's an interesting social reference. Yeah. Is there an aunt or an uncle? Is there uh, somebody in your... your um, Uh, spiritual community? Is there somebody somewhere that can come and provide some connection for your child while you figure yourself out? And so we're, you know, we're taking the lens a little bit broader and looking for those opportunities um, to see if somebody can step in as surrogate uh, while parent Mm. figures themselves out, or maybe parent won't ever figure it out. And so then we're looking for longer term um, connection sources that can step in and be present. And I think that's important to mention. Like if a, if a parent actually can't develop the empathy yeah. that's required to, to transfer that to a child, then you mentioned surrogate. Like that's, you know, that's something we should seriously be considering for parents that perhaps, you know, either biologically or maybe even chemically don't or just because they're so wounded and they're yeah. still doing their own work. Yeah. So surrogacy is something that is available to parents? Well, I think in different Empathetic societies, surrogacy? it yeah. takes... Uh, on varying forms. The reality is, as parents, period, 
we were never meant to go this alone. Yeah. Like we, there are reasons why historically we have existed in tribes and in villages. We were meant to be supported and championed in our role as parents. We had, you know, advisors that uh, gave us advice and and imparted wisdom in terms of what we the were elders, doing as parents. Yeah. We we had people that stepped in, and when we were tired or fatigued, like there were rituals and practices in place that meant sh- uh, made sure our cups were filled up so that as parents we could be our best selves as we grew our children up. And we parent in relative isolation today, by comparison. By comparison, by a long shot. So if you think about that, and then you think about, you know, a parent who's struggling, who there's, you know, big wounds or other big things happening, we we don't have these natural structures in place anymore, and so we have to backdoor them. Mm. And that's what I mean by finding the surrogate. Like, how do you backdoor that? How yeah, do you right. find the members of your village, your community, that can step forward and into that place of, of the source of connection for that child while the parent isn't able? Nice. That's beautiful. Mm. I like the way you say forward. It's very... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice? Yeah, it's nice. All right. Um... What do you think are some of the challenges that, we're, that parents are facing in modern society that perhaps our parents didn't face that is new for us and we're really having to work it out at a very big level? Well, the isolation piece that we talked about, yeah. I think, in, in bigger ways than ever before. I think that we are, uh, generally speaking, as a culture, quite frenzied in the way that we are approaching life. Uh, and I say that with broad sweeping brushstrokes. The demands on our time, the expectations in terms of the levels that we're meant to elevate to as far as performance at school, at work, um, are far greater than they've ever been before. So I think, you know, as big picture pieces, uh, those would certainly jump to mind. The other really significant piece is the technology revolution. Glad you went there. Mm-hmm. I was about to go. Okay. And we, that happened so quickly. Yeah. We did not have time to introduce cultural structures that were going to safeguard our children yeah. against the um, the evils, if you were, that um, technology can bring to bear in their their world and their lives. And so I think as parents now, ugh, in a big fast way we are having to figure that out and get on it and make sure um, we are uh, safeguarding our children that we are rewinding and getting back in there where we missed along the way there is a very very seedy underbelly especially to the social media side of things when we talk about being connection beings we will always organize ourselves around our biggest needs and so it is no surprise that social media has presented as significantly as it has. I had an article out in um, time.com a couple months ago about a group of Harvard students, incoming students, uh, who are on this um, incoming students Facebook page and began to post all these horrifically inappropriate memes that were um, uh, racially and um, uh, sexually and otherwise um, flavored. Yeah. Uh, and they were, uh, their admissions to Harvard were revoked. So imagine you spend your whole life dreaming of being at Harvard yeah. and you just got kicked out. You never even got to step foot on campus. And the question was, how could this happen to our brightest, most promising kids? Because we organize ourselves around our greatest need. And in the world of social media, it has, it has stepped in and 
and gotten in the way of our attachment relationships, mm. our truly fulfilling attachment relationships. Yeah, right. It's like we're eating chocolate cake all day long yeah, and right. we never want to sit down. And the brain down. thinks it as well. Like with Absolutely. The, the chemical releases it's going yeah. on. Yeah. And so then your parent steps forward and offers you some, you know, steamed broccoli and <laughs> glazed chicken. And you're like, Ugh, no thanks. It's interesting when we look at the early adopting Asian countries for technology and how they've got centers now that are overflowing like with internet, internet addiction treatment, gaming addiction treatment, and now even the advent of social media addiction treatment as well. Uh, and they're putting these kids into, you know, essentially what looks like from the outside 12-step programs for, you know, for digital, digital purposes. Yeah. So it really is impacting us in, in, in many ways. Huge. And I see this, you know, digital parenting. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, how do I keep my kid entertained? But I've also seen the data that suggests you know, the more for every hour of screen time that a child has, it increases the, the, the probability of the potential for ADHD developing by, you know, by what I would call a, a few percent. I can't remember the exact number, yeah. but I remember it was a few percent, which is significant. It's it wasn't hugely significant. Yeah. And if you think about like what is uh, screen time and gaming all about, it's a scan and search activity constantly. Yeah. How does that look in math class? Yeah. Not, Not good. good. Yeah. Right? And in addition, it's a very stimulating activity. So when we look at it from the, the perspective of neuroplasticity, you're getting dysregulated constantly in those games. And you sit in a dysregulated state. Guess what your brain gets good at? Dysregulating. Yeah. And which looks on the outside like challenges with attentional regulation. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do we as parents then navigate... You know, even co-parents that perhaps are like, holy shit, you know, I'm lucky if I get 20 minutes a day to myself. You know, I need to sit him right. down and put on Paw Patrol or I, I need to pull the iPad out of dinner just so I can have a moment of peace. Mm -hmm. Are there any, um, is it all bad or is there a healthy dose that we can look at and, yeah. you know, a healthy prescription we can, we, we can subscribe to? Yeah. So the Canadian uh, Pediatric Society and the um, comparative organization in the U.S. have come together with a number of experts in that field to sort of script out some guidelines for what would be appropriate. Um, the average child in Canada is spending somewhere between seven to ten hours a day oh my God. being exposed to screens. And so what wow. the expert guidelines are is that children under the age of two, zero, yeah. including background television. Wow. And then uh, I believe... Babysitters all over the world rejoice. You're <laughs> going to be getting more work. <laughs> <laughs> and then from three to uh, six, uh, I believe it's 30 minutes a day. Right. Um, six to 12, it increases uh, to uh, an hour or two in that right. stretch. That would be sort of safe um, screen exposure. And then over age 12, it's, um, it's two uh, ish yeah. hours. And then within that, they go into like, at what point does online gaming become safe and yeah. acceptable? Uh, at what point uh, do violent games become right. safe and acceptable? Is there an answer for those questions? Like yes, there is. And I'm pulling from memory. I feel like the online gaming is roughly around age 13, okay. knowing that, that you have all your parental controls in place yeah. around that. Um, and what that about gaming in general, like playing video games? Because mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid, it was like, my mum sold it to me as It'll show you. It'll teach your brain how to develop faster in different ways. And yeah, right. you know, we played these little tiny, you know, black and white, you know, 
for for pixel things. I believe it's but the six to twelve age range, to 12, okay, where that right. starts to become something that we can okay. be doing. And the online thirteen with parental controls. In That's place. right. And then violent gaming was uh, like fourteen, fifteen ish range. Right. Even if, that seems so young for I know. a fourteen year old. Yes. You know, susceptible masculine or even the feminine mind. You know, yes. hormones blasting. Yes. Learning how to regulate that in itself would be. You know, hard enough without experiencing violence. Well, and then the other piece of it, uh, in terms of what really is never actually okay, yeah. is the highly, like the sexualized, the sexualized uh, gaming. A lot of it becomes quite pornographic. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and the, it'll just never be okay. Yeah. Like, it's just, I mean, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, and exactly. so, uh, the more that you're like flooding out the brain uh, with that kind of messaging and that level of dysregulation, I mean, you're gonna, the, there will be yeah. repercussions. You know what, that's, that's a good kick in the butt for me as well uh, because with my son, when I'm home, I normally, in the new situation we have him, I'll have him between anywhere between three, in some cases five days a week. Uh, and I'm running multiple businesses and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a busy guy like yourself doing lots of different things. Uh, and in the mornings, I, the only way I can, well, it's not the only way, but I've just found a good default to go to. You know, I'll wake up early, I'll meditate. I, normally I'll I get anywhere between half an hour to an hour before he wakes up, bring him into my bed, we'll roll around and play and cuddle. Then he'll get hungry and I'll take him out and I'll, you know, I'll cook him something for breakfast. And then for me, it's almost like, okay, right, I'll put Paw Patrol on just so I can go and have a shower yeah. and just do my 22, because I've got a 22 minute routine to get ready in the morning and yeah. I, just to do my routine in order to get back out. Yeah. Um, which Not I don't 23 f- minutes? Well, it's, sorry? Not, Not 23 minutes? No, it's normally 22 minutes on the bank. <laughs> like, I don't understand why people, like, because I wear, I wear almost the same thing every day. I know how to wash myself. I do it the same way every day. Like it's routine structures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know that's going to happen almost most mornings. You know, if, if we're looking at 100 mornings that I have him, it's going to happen in probably 98 mornings where that happens. But then yeah. I find also there are other instances where he's like, oh, Dad, I want to... But he's the only kid, by the way, who will actually say, Dad, I've had enough. Mm. Well, the only kid. I'm sure there are other kids out there, but I've never heard other kids not want to watch TV because there's been times before I've said to him, do you want to watch TV while Dad does this? He goes, no, I want to be with you. Mm-hmm. So how as parents do we wrap our head you know what I'm actually going to go in a slightly different direction here you know what, you know what? there's two questions here first question is how do we as parents um, modify our own needs and behaviours in order to meet the needs for the children when it comes to screen time because for a lot of parents it's a, it's the baby like I grew up my babysitter was channel 7 you know so for me it's very it's a natural part of my what I feel was my natural upbringing how do we as parents like create a level of an understanding that we that we go okay ah it's he's only watching an hour and a half a day he's only three what's the harm like how do we rationalize this with enough impetus to go okay no that's not okay like what do we need to to do to ourselves to actually move forward what time is it (laughs) oh i'm parked in a parking zone that expired at three is it close by yes do you, can you tell Matthias what type of car you have and he can run down and feed well, the meter? So I crashed my car on Sunday. So I have <laughs> a okay. rental car. That's okay. Um, it might be towed already. Oh no, don't say that. I mean, won't that be such oh, a great story though? So um, a question that actually came in on Snapchat mm. was from a parent who said, are we allowed to have favourites? Hmm. So here's my answer. If you have a favorite, it means that you have one who's not a favorite. Mm. Where's that coming from? Oh, that sounds polarized and judgmental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what inside of you 
is judgmental. What parts of yourself are you judging harshly, unfairly, and why? Wow. Good answer. And also, there are certain human beings in this world that, that you as a human being will have a natural affinity to for whatever reason. And so let's just call that what it is and know that when it comes to loving our children, they, they don't just want but rather need our unconditional equilibrium of love. Mm, yeah. yeah, I like that. So uh, another one from Snapchat was, um, uh, I ha- this was actually from an uncle. So he says, I don't have kids, but I have a niece. I think it was a niece or his sister's daughter, who I think was around seven, who seems to be always upset, always in a bit of a mood and finds whenever someone wants to talk to her, she's annoyed about it. How do we talk to a, you know, perhaps a, you know, a seven or eight-year-old who doesn't want to talk and whenever someone tries to talk to them, they feel annoyed. This to me points to something bigger, but I'm curious mm-hmm. what your perspective is. I think you're right that it points to something bigger and that yeah. there's a shutting down in her, uh, either because she has realized that in doing that, she actually gets more connection. So if she's crusty and irritated and pushing people away, then they right. begin to become seekers and they'll be yeah. at her. And so she's getting the connection uh, that she's seeking through those attention-seeking behaviors. Um, the other thing is, I wonder if there's some kind of, um, in terms of how she connects with people. So I'll tell you like a completely different example and then we'll come back to this question. For children who are on the autism spectrum, connecting through the visual, like eye to eye, is a really like, like it's incredibly intense and vulnerable. And so they'll avoid um, that channel of connection because it just is like really floods them out and overwhelms but it's not that they're incapable of connecting it's that they will uh, find resonance in their connections with others via different channels and so it might be movement it might be touch it might be sound right Mm -hmm. and so then I go back to this um, girl uh, this uncle that's asking the question about his niece and I wonder is there something for her that makes uh, talking uncomfortable or or looking into the whites of someone's right, eyes yeah, whilst course. talking yeah. uncomfortable so much so that it has her kind of like um, uh, going into some defensive detachment yeah. where she has to just preserve herself a little bit which reads like irritation and annoyance but yeah. might actually be an incredible vulnerability that's become too much for her to bear. Or even like a, hyper, uh, a hypersensory of sorts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And if you can think about hypersensory in terms of like what we traditionally think about as sensory systems and then add into that emotionally. Mm. So for example, the one of the psychologists in my clinic who works primarily with adolescents, also a mindfulness expert, she's a really, really um, interesting individual. The way her office is set up is that she, she wouldn't sit like this to speak with her adolescent clients. They're in a chair beside that's sort of turned. Yeah. And so it gives you like this little bit of distance because yeah. it's so intense yeah. to have to connect that way. And sometimes it just doesn't work for us. So maybe it's not working for her. Maybe there's another way that that uncle can kind of figure out, um, really kind of makes sense to her right. in terms of how to connect. One of the things that I've learned um, with Noah, and I'm not sure if this is, could be broader advice, is the language of children is play. Mm. And if we play and we play in the things that they're interested mm-hmm. in, then that in itself is a form of communication. Yes. But it also opens up you know, channels, different channels of communication and connection. And when they can see that we're engaged in, you know, the things that they're interested in. 
Yes. And joining with them and yeah. having the dance and that. And it's very, like when you're three or four or five or, I mean, truth be told, even 42, sometimes it's really hard to find the words to convey what's happening on the inside. And in the world of play and connecting with our children uh, in ways that make sense to them, where they can actually access all sorts of other layers of themselves, they can um, more effectively communicate, and not always verbally, but sometimes yeah. verbally. And so finding, like, what is that? What is that for this uncle's niece? What is it for your son? Yeah. Right? It made me, did think, it did make me think of something else, which, um, you know, I think is a great strategy for parents who are used to putting their kids in front of the screen, and we are going a little bit backwards, but this will move us forwards. How important is independent playtime for, like for a developing child? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to differentiate between independent playtime and connection time with parents. Yes. And so your children need you in whatever form you of can course. sort of give of yourself through the course of the day. Having said that, you're not really, like your role really isn't to entertain them. Um, and I wrote a blog about a year and a bit ago um, on why you should do nothing when your child says he's bored. Oh, I like where this is going because I've mm -hmm. read some stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and so basically I sort of um, talked about how it's so incredibly important to uh, have space in our lives, mm. particularly when we're children, where we can just be and to see what comes out of that and for there to be a lot of space for that so that we connect with ourselves, we develop a sense of... of um, like our self-concept, who we are. Imagination. Imagination. Mm. And so when I think about independent play, it takes me to that, that place of creating space in a child's world for them to just be. Mm. Um, and, and one of the phrases that I used in that article uh, was that children need the world to be quiet enough so that they can hear themselves. Oh, wow. And if you, like, imagine being three when you are poetry itself and you can hear yourself. Oh my God. And that that's your ongoing experience in childhood. What are you gonna look like when you're 42? Oh my gosh. That was pretty deep. That went, that hit me in my soul. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've observed with independent playtime, and I'm curious for your perspective on this, is the, what I've recognized is the importance for devel developing a healthy, strong, naturally long attention span. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was, I was identified as ADHD when I was about seven. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see the characteristics become you know, very mild levels, you know, because he'll be at jiu-jitsu. There'll be 14 kids lined up. 13 of them will be, you know, looking straight forward and one will be playing with his belt and looking around, and, you know, and that's, that's my boy. Yeah. Um, but what I find interesting, because at school I failed every single subject from year one all the way through to year 12, and yeah. I, you know, now on reflection identified through my own work that I, there was just nothing in school that interested me to mm -hmm. capture my attention enough for me to put myself into it. Um, and then when I discovered, like I read, I think, I think I read my first book when I was 23, and I was completely amazed that I could actually comprehend, not only complete the book, comprehend the book, but also retain the information that was from in the book. And so I slowly, as I started to build my intelligence, I realized that ADHD for me was actually a hypersensitivity to boredom. Ah. And I started to realize that it wasn't that I was learning disabled. I actually had an upgraded system, but I have to be sure to, I have to be sure to be learning the things that are of natural interest to me. Otherwise they just won't click. Mm -hmm. And so what I've observed with Noah is almost the same thing playing out, but at a, at a level of play where, you know, it may appear 
you know, that he is, you know, easily distracted. But when he has his independent playtime and he sits down with his excavator and his trucks, he can literally focus on one thing, in some cases for 45 minutes, in some cases up to an hour, which, you know, is incomprehensible as an attention span for most mm. adults, yeah. let alone, you know, a three and a half year old. Yeah. So do you think, in, apart from independence playtimes, you know, quieting and them finding themselves, do you think it's also an important part of the development for them learning how to, you know, maintain and practice, you know, holding attention? Sure. Uh, so we were talking about technology before yes. and the scan and search um, stimulating experience of being engaged in screen time. Um, and, uh, and so what your brain practices, it becomes naturally good at, right? So if your, if your brain is getting practice with being quiet, if your brain is getting practice with sustained focus, if your brain is getting practice with the experience of mindfulness, like these are then the processes that your brain becomes good at. And so I think uh, independent play, boredom, letting mm. kids sit in their own space and figure out who they are and what excites them and, and watching where that goes and where it takes them. I mean, from a neuroplasticity perspective, that's it's important. fantastic. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad I checked the snaps because we had a number of snaps that came through um, from people saying dealing, uh, dealing with teenage moods. Mm -hmm. Like how do we navigate and communicate with these, these uh, hyper, hyper biological um, hormonal individuals who mm -hmm. in themselves are still finding themselves. Mm -hmm. But how do we maintain connection but deal with the moods but at the same time, you know, coexist in a way that is healthy? Yeah. So big thing for parents of adolescents to know that they may look pretty independent and in fact um, mimic sometimes uh, young adults, you know, where they're wandering around in these grown bodies and, and starting to drive cars and, you know, all of these things that we expect of, um, of adults. Uh, but they are children. The period of adolescence in human development is an incredibly important period, and we must not retire too early from our role as parents. Your adolescent kids need you as much as your toddlers and preschoolers wow. needed you. They're going through, and I mean, the time of, uh, like what is happening developmentally in that adolescent period in terms of self and in terms of brain is pretty profound. Um, and so, uh, so they'll be, a, the, they need you more than ever. And because it's profound, it's noisy. Mm. It's gonna get interesting. Messy. It's messy. There's uh, this big pull to black and white thinking while we're in this very egocentric stage of development. And so we're hot or we're cold. We're this or we're that. We're the light or the dark. There is no gray. There is no in between. And we go there like this. And it's just part of our, I mean, our brains are kind of turning themselves inside out. And lots of times we put it down to hormones, but really neurologically we're reorganizing so much yeah, right. that we, we just have to figure it out and yeah. make sense of it at all. Um, our, our reward center is operating very intensely during that period. And so uh, when, you know, drugs and alcohol, when we get a hit, it's a big hit. Right. It's not just the regular hit. It's big. Because right. we're big. We're yeah. all black or all white, right? And so to know that the, the, the noisiness of the adolescent period is so normal 
and so healthy and it means your kid is doing it exactly right and for us to not get angsty about that and just to know that it's all playing out perfectly that that's what it needs to be that when they get loud and mad and angry and sad they're really just regressed three or four year olds yeah in big bodies <laughs> and so how do you deal with that just as you would yeah. a three or four year old you be firm and kind and you recognize that they are stretching one hand forward to the independence of adulthood while yearningly reaching one hand backwards yeah. to the dependence of childhood. And it's a tricky spot for them to be in. And so sometimes you'll need to sort of uh, be the launching pad and sometimes you'll need to provide safe harbor and you'll, you're going to be constantly going back and forth. And it's all beautiful. It's just as it's meant to so be. So how do we as parents in that situation when they appear to be so vulnerable, especially you know neurologically, or maybe that's not the right frame, but um, when it comes to you know them developing the right relationships with the right people, mm-hmm. you know, because you know I know from my own experience, you know, developing the wrong relationship with the wrong kid at school at that age can be quite destructive. Sure. You know, especially when it comes down to being taken down paths of like drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and everything else. So how do we as parents navigate that without becoming so close that we could be labeled as a helicopter parent, you know, of an adult, of, an adult, of a teenage adult? Sure. And so uh, part of that is that you'll have already laid in this very conscious way a beautiful um, framework Mm. by the time your child reaches adolescence, that they'll have a very solid sense of self, even in the noise of the adolescent period, uh, that they'll be able to capably decision make uh, as they kind of trudge through this increasing independence and what that's all going to look like, and know when they need to sidestep some potential landmines. And so to sort of really... Uh, parenting involves a lot of faith and to have faith. A lot of trust, yeah. A lot, a lot of, of trust faith. and a lot of showing up. <laughs> to, to know that if you've, if you've really sort of been putting in your, your, your time up to that point, that they're, they're going to be okay. And be present and be available because you must not retire too soon. Mm. But, but to have faith that this is going to play out and it's going to be fine. The other thing is that it comes down to relationships. And so as your children head off to uh, middle and high school um, and, uh, you know, with that is increasing levels of independence and you don't always know who the friends are, how are you staying involved? You know, in kindergarten, you drove them on all their field trips and you Mm. had play dates with all the other parents and you created this village kind of with all of those relationships. How are you doing that now that you've got a 14, 15, 16 year old? Do you know other parents in your community of kids that they're hanging out with? Have you had them over for a meal? Do you volunteer uh, on the school parent advisory council? Like, are you present in their lives? Mm. Are you around? Not necessarily, you know, taking them to play dates. Yeah. But do you have a presence? And do they feel that presence? And in the, in the context of all of those relationships, you're holding them close in a way that's developmentally appropriate for their stage of development. Mm. Do you hold your, because you work in this field, like do you hold yourself to an un, unreasonably high standard when it comes to parenting yourself? I think as a human being, I hold myself to very high standards and not always to good effect. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's that part of it. And there is this, there, there is, it's the seedy underbelly of being in this profession, <laughs> you know, that you can see, yeah. you can see all of those things. And so I think, you know, do I hold myself to high standard, higher standard because I'm a child psychologist? I suppose so. But I'm also human. Yeah. And I mess it up all the time. And I think that's, that's where I'm kind of going. I think yes. it's important for people to realize and even if you're in the profession, you're still human, right? Absolutely. And I work to find my innocence around all of that. 
and and the innocence of, of my children's father and and everything in the middle and um, and I atone for it. Nice. And find my way forward. We'll see what tomorrow looks like. <laughs> um, another great question. This one this one came from um, Instagram. Came from a lady who said she separated from her husband about eighteen months ago. Uh, and when the kids come back from being with their dad, mm. they're often very emotional and yes. very ungrounded. Yes. Um, how, how to deal with that and how to best help the kids regulate and ground when they come home from, from a situation like that? First thing, which is a big ask, heal her relationship with their father. Right. Because if you can uh, uh, resolve the disconnection between uh, yourselves as parents, you'll take care of a lot of the disconnect that is currently making those transitions yeah, right. so challenging for your children. Um, and sometimes that's not possible. Maybe it's not possible right yeah. away to heal that relationship, or maybe there's other things getting in the way of that. How can you then bridge the divide? How can So remember our, our two steps. One was to minimize disconnect where we can minimize it, yeah. and the second was to bridge where we cannot minimize. Right. And so how are we bridging that? When the children are away for five or six days, how is she staying connected to them yeah, so right. that when they come home, they don't have such a big swing to do to get back into that's relationship really with her. Yeah, right. And so is there a way to FaceTime? Is there a way, if that's not possible, is there a way uh, to have other connection rituals that are playing yeah, right. out? Um, in the most extreme cases where none of those things will be possible, uh, there's stories like the kissing hand, uh, which is about the mama raccoon who puts the magic kisses on her little um raccoon's hands that will never wash off. They're the magic kind of kisses that stay with you always. And whenever you need them, all you need to do is put your hand up on your face and it's like I'm there giving you a kiss. And so there's all these (laughs) rituals that you can put into place that even if the other parent isn't necessarily on board or things are kind of yucky for the time being, um, that you can work to bridge the gap, that you can have the invisible string, that you can have all of those pieces. Kiss on the hand. Was that the book? The kissing hand. The kissing hand. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who would probably be listening to this who would, dare, to say, dare I say, be very busy, you know, distracted. If there was one piece of advice that you could give the people listening and watching this at home that they could take in order to improve their relationship with their child, what would that be? Have your child feel seen. Mm. It's what every single human being wants. And like really see them. Mm. And it becomes limitless. Okay. Um, so my final question for you. And I love this question. <laughs> I saw it. In the Did radio. you? Yeah. Did you get sent the questions? I got sent. Uh, the, it went a little something like this. This is possibly what you might end up talking right. about, but okay. it could go anywhere. <laughs> so um, my final question is, and we, we, we try to ask this to everyone, like, in your opinion, what does it mean to be superhuman? Mm-hmm. That's so, not the question you thought it was going to be, is it? It's a version of the question I oh, Okay, thought. let me ask the version that I wanted to ask because okay. I, I thought you read this and I was like, well, like, now I don't want to disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> In your opinion, what does it mean to be a superhuman parent? Mm, I love that question. Good. That was the question I wanted to ask. So here's what I'll say. I think... As human beings, souls walking around in in our bodies, we get really tied to our stories. And we create all sorts of stories about our life 
and about our children's lives. But we're making it all up. None of it's real. It's all just a story. And if we could really connect with that as a reality, like think about how profound that is. Think about the child that you think of as stubborn, the child that you think of as difficult, the child that you're so worried about that they're going to grow up to be this super angsty teenager that's never going to be able to handle the challenges of life. Think about those stories. And what if we could really connect with the idea that we're making it all up? None of it's real. And in the very best of all worlds, as a superhuman parent, if you could let go of the story and just allow the child's uh, soulful being to present in whatever way it needs to for its own evolution, like imagine how that would change your child's existence. And if you couldn't let go of the whole story, what if you could just tell yourself a different story, one with a happy ending? If all the parents in the land could do that for themselves and for their children, like we would change the world. Right? Absolutely. We're making it all up. Wow. I have to say, and I don't want to say I have favorites, but this has been one of my most favorite interviews so far by a long stretch. This has been fantastic. Um, so, Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, how can people find out more about you? If they want to find out more about you, your book, mm-hmm. what you do, your workshops, your mm-hmm. services, how can they find you? So, uh, drvanessalapointe.com. Uh, I am uh, also on Facebook and on Twitter at Dr. V. Lapointe. Yes. Uh huh. And my book is Discipline Without Damage yeah. How to Get Your Kids to Behave Without Messing Them Up. Wow, mm. that's really cool. I'd love to stay connected. That'd be wonderful. Thank you so Me much too. for this interview. It has been absolutely fantastic. I can tell the change, the, the change that you're doing in the world is clearly profound because it emanates from you and your energy is incredible. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're welcome. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say and your reviews. Make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray. 